The ice is gonna break! You killed your mother. She's very, very, very good. But when she's bad, she's Christian. Limoges! <laughs> Dead! The transcendence! Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast, episode 91, and my name is Jim Laskowski. That's right, we're back. With us today, or with me today, is a returning (laughs) favorite to the show. He's one of the smartest dudes I know, and I couldn't think of a better guest to discuss our director of this particular episode. So welcome back once again, Bill Ackerman. (laughs) Thank you for having me back. I hopefully will live up to the smart part. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, smart, articulate, all those adjectives I've used in the past, they're applicable. And um, as you mentioned before we start recording, yeah. uh, it's very apropos that you're joining us for David Cronenberg Part 2. Because yeah. uh, that was one of the episodes that got you hooked on the show, which is really cool. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, well, Cronenberg was one of the first directors I ever became a fan of. The way I was a fan of like bands I listened to, like him and David Lynch were the first directors that I thought of like as someone I would follow all their work. Yeah. Um, so it's you know I, 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 he goes through peaks and valleys as far as like which ones I love the best, but it's definitely someone I followed kind of closely for a long time. So yeah, I'm definitely excited to talk about all the work uh, he did with you. <laughs> yeah, I do recommend listening to part one, um, but. You know, because we're not as as most people know from previous sequel episodes, which we haven't done in a very long time. You know, we're not going to delve too deep into either Dead Ringers or a history of violence since we've covered those at length in the part one episode of David Cronenberg. So, if you're looking for lengthy discussions on those two films in particular, you definitely want to go back and listen to part one. But this is kind of like a reboot. Uh, excursion into the work of David Cronenberg because I imagine uh, a lot of his films that did come up in that episode will most definitely come up once again in this episode. Um, You know, the majority of his work will come up in conversation because it's kind of hard not to um, cover a lot of the films that um, he's done over the years, but we are going to definitely discuss a lot of his more recent work because um, I think at the time that episode was released, I don't even think a dangerous method had come out at that point. Yeah, it was the, uh, you had recorded it between Eastern Promises was the most recent and Dangerous Method was coming out, I think, wow. later that year. Yeah, and I uh, I mean, we'll definitely touch upon Cosmopolis, um, but I, I really don't have a whole lot to say about Maps of the Stars. And I mean, it's just interesting to see like you said, you know, ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys, just a really fascinating filmography overall. The ones I definitely want to focus on, probably because they're, you know, become more of my favorites, even more so after rewatches, are The Fly, Existence, Spider. Um, there's certainly, uh, uh, you know, a good stretch of 20 minutes, probably an obvious 20 minutes in uh, Cosmopolis that I absolutely love. So I think I want to talk about a little bit about Cosmopolis, too, because yeah. you know, it's one of his more recent ones that have kind of been divisive. I know people love it. I know people hate it. Yeah. But um, I would like to have 
a very brief discussion on Crash. Because sure. as, as most people know, it's a movie I can't stand. And I was on another podcast, uh, like, sort of in all alone in a corner. Because, like, the majority of podcasts I've listened to, and a lot of people I respect, a lot of critics I, I know and have read, they love this movie. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know yeah. what... And I don't know what the disconnect is for me in particular, because I am a fan of the book, I'm a fan of the director, so... There's definitely uh, – this Crash is one of those movies where I'm like, okay, let's get – I want to rent out a uh, um, you know, a, a room at a college, have all the fans of this movie basically just teach me for two hours or however long they want, essentially, mm-hmm. why this movie is so great. You know, I mean, I, it's it's a film that I I think it might be his best film, but it's not one. This is crazy. Yeah, it's not one that I ever am confused when people can't connect with it because it's such a cold. Uh, I don't know what the word is. Um, it, it it doesn't tell the story in a in a um, conventional way. It tells it through largely through sex scenes and through like very sparse dialogue. And I, I think I respond to it just kind of from an aesthetic place mostly. I mean, the ideas. I don't think it's that profound a film, but I think it's uh, it's almost kind of like Eraserhead for David Lynch, where it's like hmm. it's it's so perfectly what it is, and you're either com- going to be kind of left on the outside or like deeply within it. I think. I showed it to somebody recently who had never seen it, and I don't think was even really that familiar with Cronenberg in general. And they weren't quite sure what to make of it. They didn't love it or hate it. Um, I saw it, I remember hmm. seeing it whenever, whenever it first opened in the um, United States. Uh, I went with like maybe 14, 15 friends from college to see it. And I think everyone liked it except one or two people, but, but like the, the reactions were completely polarized. Like one person thought it was garbage. One person thought it was one of the best films ever made. Um, it was one that grew on me. Like the first time I saw it, I think I was so nervous because it was my idea to bring a whole group of people to see it that I thought like, <laughs> I would be kind of flayed alive if the reaction was half as heated as it was like all over the world. Hey know? guys, let's go out to night on the movies. Let's have some fun. Yeah, let's exactly. Crash. Yeah, I mean, I knew it was like going to be that kind of film. I mean, I, I'd been yeah, following it since it opened at Cannes. You're and, not uh, naive. I know that, but yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing with, the thing with that one is that. It seems like kind of a perfect summing up of a lot of the things that he's good at. And it, it, well, here's one thing I wanted to just bring up that's, I think, important when talking about David Cronenberg is that he uses a lot of the same collaborators for most of his career. I think sure. if you go back to Fast Company, you have uh, Ron Sanders as the editor, Carol Spear doing the art direction, like production design. Um, you have Mark Irwin up until Dead Ringers, and then you have Peter Shuzitsky up to the present, and you have Howard Shore from The Brood on to the present. And f- with very few exceptions, that's the that's the team that is all part of the Cronenberg package. So it's like maybe the consistency in the work, even more so than the themes he tackles, is like the behind-the-scenes crew is always the same. Hmm. Um, and I think that when you look at Crash, you don't just see Cronenberg... Uh, as a director of actors, of, as a writer um, it, in top form, but you see um, Peter Shuzitsky like as a really you know does really good uh, 
like the cinematography is quite beautiful in it. The score is kind of eerie and unusual, like that electronic, um, the, the electric guitar-driven score. Best um, part about Crash is the opening credits. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, and that's another thing that we could talk about is like how he uses oh, yeah. opening credits because um, he has very strong opinions on that. And actually, one of the things that I find to be uh, funny about History of Violence, which we, we can talk about that later, but uh, is the opening credits. But the um, you know, the thing with Crash, I think I'm just never bored with it, which is the opposite reaction that you have because you find it very hard to engage with. I, I'm never thrown out of it by anything because it's all in that same rhythm. In a way, my favorite uh, my favorite bit of filmmaking from David Lynch is the first half hour or so of Lost Highway. And this came out not too far from that time. That, uh, oh, Lost they, came around, came they came out. Yeah, they came around the same time and I saw them back to back. With the same people. Yeah. <laughs> and it was interesting because I, I think there was four people total. Two people loved Lost Highway and two people hated it. Yeah. And uh, all, I think three three of us hated Crash and one person loved it. It was just a really, like, those were the best times for just intellectual conversations amongst friends with these two filmmakers that we both loved. Yeah, well, I, I think that they're both... I mean, beyond the fact that they both ran into ratings troubles and they both have Arquette sisters getting naked and they both have like very slow paced kind of opening scenes and like very kind of soft spoken dialogue. Um, they also were like kind of comeback vehicles for both of them because Lynch was coming off of the uh, the bad reception Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me got and Cronenberg was coming off of Van Butterfly, which was pretty, uh, it wasn't great, you know, reception for that one either. So these were like, it's minor Cronenberg. It's still good, but it's minor. Yeah, but this was like them doubling down on like their most um, envelope pushing kind of aspects, and so I think it was really kind of exciting because these were like you know these, these were directors that had been cult favorites since the seventies, coming back with like these very strong, very uh, late nineties level kind of um, kind of work. I, Crash. I mean, I think I think. Um, I don't know what to, what more. To say. It, it's it's kind of a hard film to convince people that they're not connecting to something if it's because it, I, I respond to it like on a, on a visceral level and I don't I want I, to connect to it so bad because like I love the book I love the director and it's tackling themes that I love in terms of the psychology of technology and um, you know sexuality as like this dehumanizing thing that you know we don't even real. I think what I think of it is it's like the anti- you know the antithesis Cronenberg's antithetical portrayal of pornography because like it is really set up like a porno you know because there's so, so many sex scenes and not a lot in between I mean there's interactions in between of course because yeah. it is a traditional movie but I think it's like him commenting on you know um what pornography has done to sexuality and how it's dehumanized us. Um, and the book itself, too, is obviously commenting on, um, you know, the car as a womb. And, you know, it's become like this protective uh, place that is also just because of our fascination with it has dehumanized us. And I, I like that idea. I like all those ideas. And I actually really enjoy read I both actually both Crash and Cosmopolis. I love reading them. I like these stories. And I think 
you know, just the ideas both in both books are great, but for some reason, seeing them portrayed on screen doesn't work for me. Uh, I don't know why. <laughs> well, and Cosmopolis is the one that reminds me most of Crash of everything else he's done. Oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. Um, well, it's, it's also some of the last stuff that he wrote, because uh, after Crash, he did not... Because Existence, I want to say, was developed before Crash, but didn't get made until after. Oh, really? Um yeah, because I think I think that it was MGM maybe like like initially it was a major studio that he developed Existence with, and then they were I think finding it too uh, too non mainstream. Ultimately, like they they were they were afraid like of of developing that project further, and that he made it with uh, I think with the Weinstein brothers um, for Miramax maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, but Crash is the last thing he wrote until. Uh, Cosmopolis. Um, I think everything else, because Spider on, are all written by other people. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting to me, because Cosmopolis is like a talkier Crash. Um, And, like, Crash, to me, I don't really care um, about the characters. And, like, there's not... Like, I know a lot of it's revealed through action and not necessarily dialogue, Mm -hmm. but then once you know, Elias Coteus sort of opens up, like he literally looks, almost looks to the camera and sells the theme of the movie. And I, I don't know why that bugs me so much. Cause I mean, it, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. It sort of depends on the context, but like when he says we are reshaping the body through technology or whatever he says at one point that irks me. And it's, and like, I know he's done it before. I know Cronenberg has done that yeah. in Videodrome and Existence and, and you and I have spoken about this uh, not recording, and I, I'm pretty. I always read that as Cronenberg making fun of the idea of stating the theme r- rather than an actual stating of theme. <laughs> I, so it's him making th- light, and I think it's him making light of the way that he, you know the films could be potentially explained. I, I think of that as a joke. But I did read online at one point that <laughs> that, that you should interpret Crash as a comedy, and I was like. I don't well, think that's true, but I, I well, it's a dark comedy, obviously. But uh, I think it's easier to interpret it as a romance because all it really is about, mm. on some level, is a guy that he's trying to keep things exciting with his with his uh, partner, uh, and hmm. when the when the car crash kind of transforms how he experiences things, it's basically just a kind of they have to work together to like get him, her on the same page. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the fact that they're sleeping with all the rest of the characters, I think on some level you you could read it as like uh, infidelity if you take it like at that level. But I think it's really just them trying to fine tune their own relationship again. Um, So it's actually kind of a sweet movie. (laughs) Yeah, or (laughs) on some weird deranged level, it could be an argument for polyamory or something. Um, But but, but like also just, you know, the... Maybe it's just it's not an engaging experience just because of the idea of somebody getting off on car crashes and you know like there's just I don't know why it doesn't sit with me very well in terms of watching it and I love all these actors I love the ideas and for some reason it it puts me off in a way that feels forced like like Cronenberg really is a challenging filmmaker in 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 ways that 
can irk a lot of people that can just oh, yeah. make them that make them go okay well this guy is not for me he's just pushing the buttons and his imagery is just like way too much for me like even I, it took me a while to warm up to naked lunch to be honest i think that's probably patrick's favorite movie yeah. of cronenberg's and it took maybe by the third viewing to finally really appreciate that film because like the first time I tried to watch, it, I was like, "This guy is just really trying to fuck with his audience, and not really stating upfront what this film is trying to be or what it's trying to do." I mean, I did see it early on before I even really like dissected film and appreciated it for what same, it is. Same but, here, yeah. But you know, now I really appreciate it and love it. But yeah. like, I keep hoping. I think I've seen Crash. Like, this would probably be a whole episode onto itself. Like movies. I've rewatched that I don't really like because mm-hmm. I keep hoping that I'm going to click with it one of these days. Um, which, incidentally, really quickly, as a side note, <laughs> the next episode I'm going to be recording with next weekend will be with Patrick on um, two movies that I didn't initially love when I first watched them, and uh, I because you know I contributed to that. Um, much like you have and um, um, a couple of other uh, contributors and listeners have. They, we all contributed $50 to that um, um, indie film campaign yeah. through uh, Kickstarter. So we all get to um, basically have a bonus episode with Patrick. And my choice was to just you know go back and assess a couple of movies that I it took me a while to warm up to. And one of them happens to be The Master – which I didn't like fall in love with on a first viewing, and now yeah. I love. Uh, and the other one we're going to be talking about is uh, Joe versus the Volcano. Wow. <laughs> Two very different films. But we've been promising a, you know, a master follow-up discussion, and I figure since you know, Paul Thomas Anderson is my favorite director, and you know, pa- Patrick and I have been talking about revisiting that movie, we're finally going to do it. So that's going to be a fun... Um, episode to have, and I just like the idea of, I really want to like this movie, I really want to keep watching it in hopes of getting it, so it's not like I'm dismissing Crash as a bad movie because clearly it, there's a lot going on within it that makes people love it and for some reason people connect to it and I can see people appreciating it as a film, but it's like an emotional experience or like at least something that can sit well with me or something I can ponder afterwards. I wish it did. Um, but it, and the problem too is pacing. Like it's, it moves so slowly. Yeah. Um, and for some reason, maybe it's because I'm more invested into um, the lead character in spider. Cause spider really, really moves slow too. Yeah. Well, in a way, those two feel of a, of a piece to me in a way that, most others in his filmography don't. And uh, Spider is interesting because that really, to my mind, marks the end. It's a transitional film because on the one hand, it marks the end of a certain kind of uh, art house period that I think Dead Ringers kind of kicks off. Um, But it was such a flop and such an impact to him uh, personally, on a financial level, because he didn't. I think he deferred his salary on that, and when that yeah. didn't connect, um, it could have spelled real disaster for him. And I think that history of violence is a very blatant attempt to have another commercial success. Even down to, since I mentioned opening credits, the opening credits are in that television style that he has trashed in the past, like that kind of 
making the opening credits having that play out over action. Like he does not like that personally. Um, but I think he saw a need to have a hit um, and took on uh, you know the graphic novel uh, and, and made a you know much more uh, American friendly movie first one like that really since maybe even the dead zone as far as like one that has like any kind of trace of americana to it um which was another which is another one that was really kind of made um you know in in reaction to uh the darkness and strangeness of uh, videodrome but spider i think it's 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 an interesting film because and and it's one of the only ones not shot in toronto um and doesn't have Carol Spear doing the set design, but I, but again, it has like Howard Shore and Peter Chizitsky, everyone working a, like in top form. And it's one of Ray Fiennes's, I think, one of his most interesting performances. Oh God, yes, I I think that they now show this in um, some psychology classes, yeah, because it's one of the most accurate portrayals of schizophrenia you'll ever see. Do you know the name of the condition that he suffers from? I, I read it was a very specific kind of thing. I don't know if it's just paranoid schizo. Uh, I don't know if it's schizotypal. I know it's it's definitely on the schizophrenia spectrum. I'm not sure what specific kind. Okay. But I mean, yeah, I it, he you know he hears voices. He talks to himself. He's really sensitive for obvious reasons. Once you see the movie, to um, smells like the gas. Um, you know the that that big structure outside. I'm assuming it's like just a big uh, gas facility or something. Yeah. Um. That that whole thing is. That's one of those movies that, if you don't really like it the first time you see it, if you watch it a couple more times, you'll 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 understand you'll understand why it's so great. It's it's really yeah. one of those movies that sneaks up on you in terms of what it's trying to convey over time. Well, it's funny too because it has like a Sixth Sense Fight Club kind of twist to it. If you don't know what it's yeah. about, but it was yeah, I, I think I think it's like maybe the most. Uh, austere and deliberate and arty of the Cronenberg films, even maybe more than Crash, uh, but without like the um, the repellent imagery that he's usually uh, kind of identified with. But uh, I don't know why. I mean, I, I understand. I wa- watched it again to prepare for this podcast. I hadn't seen it in at least ten years, and um, it's a really remarkable film. I, I, I think it's. I, I prefer it to a lot of what follows because um, yeah. The last couple of years, knowing Cronenberg as a writer-director first, to to watch this phase of his career where it's almost all about finding his voice in other people's writing, like whether it be Don DeLillo or Bruce Wagner with Maps of the Stars or uh, was it Stephen Knight who did Eastern Promises. It's like it's it's finding other people's obsessions and trying to make them your own. And Cosmopolis seems to feel it feels the closest because he wrote it. But it's frustrating on some level if you're looking to trace an easy through line through the films that used to be so easy. I think one of the reasons Cronenberg got famous with critics so quickly is because he made their job so easy. <laughs> yeah. Writing about the whole body horror, you know, new flesh kind of phenomenon, you you can so easily trace the through line through Shivers and Rabbit and The Brood and Scanners and Vitadrome, etc. Um, he makes it a lot trickier. And it's funny, every time you see a new Cronenberg film come out, there's always that segment of the critics that bend over backwards trying to tie it all together in a neat way. But at the end of the day, he is more of a gun for hire on a lot of these projects. And that becomes, you know, I think really apparent with something like Maps of the Stars, which barely feels like Cronenberg. No, it doesn't. It feels, 
I don't know. It feels like Cronenberg taking a piss. <laughs> it just feels like him not really. I mean, obviously, he his voice is there. There's a moment of shocking violence. There's there's definitely Cronenberg touches throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just, I, I th- his intention. I think was to make a dark comedy, but I didn't find most of it funny. And the the idea of him you know, satirizing Hollywood has been done to death by practically every filmmaker on the planet to where, you know, this just, it feels like a rehash of so many other Hollywood satires that have come before it. I'm not quite sure why he took that project, actually. He didn't Maybe he's just to- pissed off at Hollywood and he wanted to, you know, it's almost like how everybody wants to do a Hitchcock movie at some point in their careers. You know, almost every filmmaker wants to you know, do a Hollywood satire at some point I, in their careers. I, I guess. I mean, it's harder to even imagine Cronenberg having much opinion one way or the other about Hollywood, even even to the degree that like someone like David Lynch would, you know, channel some of that frustration into Mulholland Drive. Like, Maps of the Stars does not feel like... Like, the whole fascination with celebrity culture does not feel like it comes from Cronenberg at all. It feels like what he is drawn to is ways of visualizing some of the... Uh, maybe some of the more grotesque, you know, images like you know the the, the way that the, uh, the the gloves, the black gloves, like shield the scars, or even uh, maybe that um, like that like that weird uh, like therapy session between Julian Moore and John Cusack, which has like some of the uh, a whiff of the psychoplasmics kind yeah, of uh, totally therapy from the Brood. But for the most part, it's it, it feels almost like um, like Brett. Uh, Ethan Ellis, like the uh, that Schrader film, um, what is that? Uh, the one with Lindsay Lohan. The uh, one I haven't seen because I heard it was horrible. I saw, uh, it, it, you know, I mean, I, this is not the place to defend that film. It's 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 interesting trash. Okay, um, but it's but it's it's actually kind of similar because it's like uh, you have this kind of like bitchy Hollywood kind of expose thriller sleaze thing, but directed by like a cold. <laughs> With like a cold intellectual style, the canyons is the film I'm thinking of. So like you actually could compare those two as being so like academically minded as to kind of be trashy, but trashy in quotes because they're made by filmmakers that are too smart to just really like get dirty in the trash. <laughs> so I, I don't know. That's what it reminded me most of, more so than um, I I saw it being told that it was like the more accessible cousin to Cosmopolis. And it really doesn't remind me that much uh, of it. Um, other than the fact that they're both very language driven films because they're, they're, they're really good, uh, kind of math pe- like the, uh, vehicles for, uh, for voices other than Cronenberg's own. Right. But, um, let's take a quick detour though. Yeah. Um, cause, uh, most people know like sort of the routine and structure of Directors Club by now, and I I realize that like things are going through a transitionary period. I will definitely try to make the episode shorter, in that the what we watch segment is going to be really condensed. Like it's not going to go on for an hour like it used to. <laughs> um, so I would like to just have like a quick twenty minute discussion on one movie each that we've seen recently, just like a new release or something yeah. interesting that we both can uh, bring up to people. Gotta be watching something. Gotta be watching something. Gotta be watching something. Gotta be watching something. Forty eight hours. Yeah, yeah. Lincoln lawyer. Yeah, yeah. American movie. Yeah, yeah. Paint your wagon. Yeah. I probably want to 
probably one of my biases, probably a, a huge reason why the uh, Nightmare on Elm Street series resonates with me as a whole, even though uh, a lot of the movies, individual films are kind of bad, especially towards the end there. But um, dreams, uh, dreams are one of the more interesting facets of uh, existence to me in general. And uh, obviously, as a psychology graduate student, I found it just endlessly fascinating to analyze dreams uh, from both my friends and family and myself and just reading uh, both case studies and all sorts of things on the neuroscience and biology of dreams. Um, so once I knew that this movie was going to be coming out, I was like, well, I have to see this thing. And it is called The Nightmare. It's by Rodney Asher, who previously did Room 237, which Patrick loved. And I liked quite a bit, that's for sure. Um, I didn't think it was a perfect film, but I certainly appreciated its thesis on you know the subject subjectivity of how we view uh, movies. And in some ways, this is like the subjectivity of the the experience of sleep, really. It's just like what happens to the individual once we fall asleep and how some people can lose control of their bodies. And um, I've experienced what uh, a number of people uh, bring up in this documentary. It's uh, sleep paralysis, which essentially you your eyes wake up in the middle of, I think it's REM sleep, like you're in a very, very state of deep sleep. And you're... <sighs> There's a chemical that's escaping my brain right now, pun intended. Um, there's there's just a, like something that is causing you to not act out your dreams when you're asleep. So your body basically is in paralysis when you're actually asleep, so you're not running around uh, acting out your dreams or sleepwalking or anything like that. In fact, I think if you ever see the movie Sleepwalk with me, the um, movie about, I think... Uh, the movie with comedian Mike Birbiglia, he talks about him having this disorder where he's walking around acting out his dreams and hurting himself and other people and walking out of windows and all sorts of crazy shit. So yeah, sleep paralysis is um, heavily featured in this documentary called The Nightmare, which um, it is a series of talking heads, which I understand like, you know, at this point people are people who love film and documentaries are kind of rolling their eyes at just kind of going, oh no, I don't want to see something like that again. But what sets this movie apart from all those other, um, you know, talking head esque documentaries is the fact that this filmmaker chooses to um, visually represent and uh, showcase these night terrors, um, basically, basically reenactments and the surreal, dreamlike image imagery manifesting itself right before your eyes is some of the most scariest shit I've seen in a long time. Um, I mean, there's a couple of kind of jump scary moments that you could roll your eyes at, but I, it, it was still effective for me because I've experienced similar nightmares that these people have had to where it was like, I wonder if I was abducted by aliens too. <laughs> like mm. that sort of comes up and like the movie communion comes up, obviously, you know, based on the book by uh, Whitney Stryber, I think I forgot the name of the author, but yeah, Christopher Walken played, um, played him in that movie communion. And of course, the nightmare in Elm street series comes up in this. Um, it's just, it's just an all encompassing documentary 
about dreams, nightmares, sleep paralysis, all these things that I've either studied or experienced. Um, and I think it's really well done. I can see people finding it really repetitive just because for the most part, there's not, I mean, there are chapter breaks per se mm-hmm. where, you know, it'll tell you, well, this, this is the next section that we're going to cover right now. Uh, but it is the same, pretty much the same eight people or so, uh, telling different dreams or sort of, uh, you know, kind of documenting the progression of their dreams and, a lot of people can find that tedious. I I've known people who hate, who hate it when um, you say I gotta tell you about this dream I had. Like there are people who find that shit boring, yeah, and uninteresting. But me, I particularly love it. Uh, tying all the way back to Freud's book on dream analysis. There's just something about the subconscious that has always fascinated me, and I think this movie captures it quite well and almost treats it like a horror movie. Does it have any science that you didn't already know, or is it just the uh, the dreams themselves and how they're portrayed that appeals to you? More of the latter. I, I will say that, like, maybe for, like, five minutes, I don't even know if they talk to a neuroscientist or anything of the, like along those lines, but they, I mean, they sort of briefly mention the, the possible medical reasons why this can happen and how this can develop into a disorder and how which parts of the brain it affects but it's very brief it's really mostly f- focused on the people and their personal experiences um and i like that you know there's probably about 10 minutes that sort of tackles on dream culture in pop culture which is kind of interesting to me because you know obviously to talk about nightmare on elm street and the fact that people who have never even seen those movies have freddy krueger nightmares <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, just because like the image almost how like they say in, in uh, New Nightmare because Freddy Krueger is like King Kong or Santa Claus that like everybody just has this image of who this guy is so he just automatically becomes a nightmare figure in a person's dreams is really interesting to me yeah I mean that well that character was such a pop culture fixture for a while that I, I was aware just as a as a kid of that character years before I ever saw any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies and I wouldn't surprise me that he would be a figure of nightmares uh, for people who haven't seen them although I didn't have one but uh, I never and I never experienced sleep paralysis but I've known people uh, beside yourself that have and uh, yeah, yeah. It's, in a way even just describing how it's a, a um, you know recounting uh, the experiences of several different people it reminds me just structurally from what you're describing of room 237 a little bit yeah, it is. I mean, obviously in Route 237, you never really see the people's faces. In this, you do. Mm-hmm. They're they're um, more or less candid interviews with people. They're they're, they're framed interestingly. They're they're shot differently. Sometimes they're they're um, filmed from afar, like they're in a, you know the cameras in a completely different room. He does come up with interesting ways to where it's not just like you know, practically a close-up of the person's face and them talking directly into the camera, mm. or it's not framed like in an Errol Morris fashion. Um, so it's he does come up with interesting ways to make the talking heads portions unique and not boring. Um, so I don't, I don't think Patrick's going to love this as much as he did what, Room 237 just because of that structure of just the fact that we see these people, talking heads style, basically just you know, recounting their dreams. And then we just see it visually represented on screen. But I think just this experience for me, and probably just because I related to it, um, 
it really affected me, and I also think it's a scary fucking movie. Like, even if you've never had these experiences, if if you're not, like, an active sort of dream person, like, there are many people out there, and my dad was one of them, who rarely could remember their dreams or who rarely, like, you know, had vivid nightmares or anything along those lines. Some people literally go to sleep and wake up and don't remember anything or don't have an active dream life, whereas I do. And I don't know if that's just because of... Um, the medication I'm on or the fact that I started meditating, which I hear sort of wakens your subconscious more or less. Um, I feel like I have, I'm living a second life sometimes when I go to sleep. And I think that's interesting to me And this documentary sort of captures the, um, the darker side of that. And it, there is some imagery in this, including some of aliens that scared the fucking shit out of me. So <laughs> I, I, I'm excited for people to see it, but be warned. It is scary. Yeah. I'm very curious to see it now. My, uh, my father never, uh, as far as I know, he said he's never had any dreams. Um, which I always found really strange from when I was a kid hearing that. Cause I had yeah. very vivid nightmares. Um, it's funny. Um, maybe just because I saw her, the Spike Jones film again, really recently, but I was reminded, uh, what you're describing this of the, um, Amy Adams making that documentary on, uh, was it her mother just sleeping and her, <laughs> her, uh, her jerk husband suggesting that she, uh, dramatized the dreams to make it more interesting. I was just thinking. That. Oh yeah. That's interesting. I didn't think of that either. Wow. Yeah. Hmm. Um, what did you see recently? Um, okay, so there's this DVD company called Artsploitation Films that came out in late December 2012. And what their specialty was uh, kind of like these wild, unconventional uh, international films, like foreign films that uh, sometimes uh, have like a little bit of an exploitation movie feel, a little bit of an art movie feel, hence the name. And... Um, they had a really interesting cross-section of films from all over the world, from India, a film called Gandu, a film um, called Animals from Spain that I think I talked about on the Rogue episode, uh, Vanishing Waves from Lithuania, which is a masterpiece, um, Clip from Serbia, like a lot of interesting uh, films that like might play festivals, but generally don't have, uh, you know, a, a, a very strong likelihood of getting a wide release or even a theatrical release at all in America. Checking out that label made me realize, not that I needed that much of a reminder, but just how many interesting films that I think would really appeal to a lot of my friends just aren't going to come out here because of one hmm. reason or another. Um, but they had kind of ceased operations in like uh, the last ep- the last thing they put out was like in February of last year. So I thought they might be done. Um, but they have a whole slew of new titles coming out now. And I just bought the first one, their first one on Blu-ray. Uh, it's a German film called Der Samurai. Um, I didn't know anything about it beyond the title and my trust in the label. So I bought it cold and put it on. And I don't know how much the element of surprise matters because anything I'm going to tell you from this point on will be more of a spoiler than I had. Um, but you know, uh, so if, if you're listening to this and you know, want to have my experience, you should fast forward a little bit, but uh, I, I went into it cold and it basically, it's about like this kind of young sheltered cop in like a very rural small town in Germany who gets kind of teased by the locals and, uh, like, hangs out with his grandmother a lot, and there's this wolf terrorizing the area, and he's, you know, uh, putting out meat to try to catch it. 
but uh, he he gets this strange package in the mail that is a samurai sword, and he brings it to this uh, mysterious neighbor who is this Klaus Kinski-looking kind of young man in a nice white dress who then takes the sword and begins kind of an assault on the town. And, like, their relationship trying for this cop trying to stop this crazed uh, transvestite Ooh. samurai. And it's, it's really unpredictable and funny and open to all sorts of interpretations. Because looking at the reviews it got... I didn't. I didn't read anything on it until afterwards. It's funny because, like, some critics find it offensive and homophobic because it's you know the villain is a uh, is a transvestite and you know they, they read it as a very conservative kind of take. And then there are other critics, gay critics especially, who find it to be like a sexy homoerotic revenge fantasy. Um, so you can take whatever you want from it. You could be offended by it, or you can find it sexy, or you can just find it like very refreshingly offbeat. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. Um, it's the first film from the director, uh, Till Kleinert, who uh, I guess has done like a, a number of short films, but this is the first feature. Oh, and good. it's still kind of short for a feature. Like it's I think, hmm. maybe 80 minutes long. So it doesn't overstay its welcome with, with the premise. Um, has an actor named Pitt Bukowski, who I've never seen before, who's really compelling as the uh, the titular samurai. And like I said, he reminds me of like a um, like a slightly more buff, like you know, traditionally handsome variant of uh, Klaus Kinski. Um, I don't know. I think it's. I don't know if I have ten minutes to talk about it because there's not too much more I can say without getting into major spoilers. But it's. Uh, if you're, if you're looking for something that's kind of like a genre film that is very much off the beaten path, uh, I I would say it's worth checking out. And I would say to check out that label in general because they have a few other titles coming out, including one called Horsehead, which gets compared to David Lynch in some of the pre-release uh, press materials. That looks interesting. Um, but art exploitation films is the label, and uh, yeah, Der Samurai is their first Blu-ray. I've been I've been saying this a lot recently probably because i've been so busy but uh i i'm such a proponent now of films that don't overstay their welcome um i think this kind of started with pickpocket where it was like 79 minutes no bullshit it was just like everything you could want an emotionally satisfying experience well done well shot great plot everything you want in just like a short span of time and it just doesn't overstay its welcome. And that also happened recently with uh, Point Blank, where it's just like, oh, man, why can't I don't I'm not saying like every movie has to be 80 minutes or 90 minutes. But when it's done right, I'm like, yeah, let's that way I can watch more movies when they're shorter. <laughs> we can transition over back to the director of the episode. <laughs> So Existence is one that you, I know, are really fond of. Can you talk to me about what what uh, sets that apart for you? Yeah, I think, man, Existence is a really interesting film because I've heard people really dismissive of it. And I kind of like the fact that it's it's one of Cronenberg's more 
self-aware, playful films. Like I think he he knows the message he's trying to get across has been done in the fly and Videodrome before, and he sort of makes light of that in, in a way. And like this sort of there's like kind of a hidden meta quality to it, and just it's very layered. And almost like in an Inception kind of way because of the different levels of reality going on in this movie. I think that it's just my – it's it's totally my cup of tea. Mm. And when I first saw it, I saw it around the same time as The Matrix, obviously, because they came out the same year. Oh, yeah. And bo- like movies that question reality, I love that shit. I, I mean, even when it's done poorly, like The 13th Floor, <laughs> I, I mean, I think just the idea of like, hmm, is this really real? You know, like, is this wall right here? Is it really here? Is it just my mental projection of it being here? But like, Existence is a really cool sort of um, commentary on the interconnectivity of video games. And it's almost like commenting on the world of Warcraft, world of people getting so immersed into something that they get lost and uh, don't even know what's real and what's not anymore. Or they're just so focused on their game character that they forget who they are in, in real life. Or they want to be their game character so much that their real life just seems boring in, compa- in comparison. Um, and it's just it's 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 kind of a fun movie. I mean, it's it's not like as cold. I think that's kind of why like coming off of Crash too. Yeah. Um, it just feels like Cronenberg getting back in touch with the the director that made Videodrome and The Fly and I think that's my favorite Cronenberg mode. I mean, as much as I like his forays into, you know, psychological territory with Dangerous Method and Spider, um I I, I think this is like the best of all worlds when it comes to Cronenberg is stuff like Existence, The Fly, Videodrome where he's combining two things that have always interested me and that's technology and reality and um also identity. I mean, he's he's really fascinated. Clearly, even with just the 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 two back to back Viggo Mortensen films, is uh, the duality of man, and just like um, you know how it sort of bleeds into each other, the good and the bad, um, and even something like Spider. I think Ray finds his character more or less uh, has 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 sort of projected onto his own mother two different sides. Or even if you want to go further, three. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's what's really interesting is like with Existence, it's a more playful version of the Cronenberg themes, and I think he's aware of that as he's making it. And yet at the same time, he's like, "Fuck, I want to have, I just want to have a gun that shoots teeth, and that's cool." <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting. Uh, I mean, what when it came out, it was the first original screenplay that wasn't adapting anything else since Videodrome, and a complaint that I've heard about it. Um, is that it shows it shows up like a lack of new ideas, new imagery to the, to their thinking that it, it it feels so much of an extension of the films that he made in the early eighties, like Videodrome and Scanners, and like that kind of like that, it's just a rehash of, that it that it shows you know. that all those years you know adapting Stephen King or adapting Ballard or adapting Burroughs when he went back to his own set of ideas, they really hadn't developed to their thinking that much far beyond what he was doing, you know, uh, back in the early eighties. Uh, when I saw it, I think the thing that threw me, and there's examples of this 
prior to Existence, but um, it, a certain kind of like more heightened, stylized, cartoonish kind of acting starts becoming more apparent, at least to me, uh, in that film. And you can find it in Naked Lunch, and you can find it in even things as far back as Scanners and earlier. But it's, it seems like with a few of the recent films, um, I'm trying to think of another example. Like History of Violence has this um, to some God, extent. The, the, bull, the bully in History of Violence is yeah. practically like a caricature, cartoon character. Well, also uh, William uh, Hurt. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, and you can find. I mean, even something like Cosmopolis is so stylized that I think part of me missed the the naturalism that you would get from like. Uh, something like Dead Ringers, you know, or uh, James Woods in, in Videodrome, or even like the kind of, um, I don't know, something like Jeff Goldblum and The Fly. It's like, it's quirky, but it still feels grounded. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a certain kind of, and, and Existence kind of um, excuses it by building in the fact that it's artificial by design. But then Correct. it's, but it seems like, that still that still means that I have an hour and a half of of people playing it a lot bigger, and it's just an aesthetic thing. I mean, I I have to be in the right frame of mind for like that style, that mode. I'm also less interested personally in the like the more espionage driven kind of Cronenberg. Uh, Scanners is another one. I mean, I still I still find it interesting, and Existence has like you know an amazing cast um, of all actors I enjoy seeing, not just Jennifer Jason Lee, but. You know, people like Willem Dafoe and uh, Ian Holm. And, um, yeah, I think that it was weird seeing it, like, following Crashed for him to go. It felt like a step towards safer territory. Uh, I, can, I can understand that. I, I, like, I don't argue that with people if they, if they feel that way. Yeah. I think it's just one of the more, maybe in terms of, like, a, you know, if I have a craving for something Cronenberg... Yeah, I would easily put on existence over Crash. I mean, I think yeah. it's just because the, there's just it's just more fun to watch. It's it's and I think like even with something like The Fly or The Dead Zone, because they're anchored by these character actors who we all associated with as being you know kind of dementedly quirky and um, <laughs> just out there as people, yeah. they manage to like. I think those are the two best performances by those actors. Like, I think Jeff Goldblum, best performance. Christopher Walken, probably his best performance. Um, I just, there's something about, uh, you know, Cronenberg's ability with those two actors in particular, with with a lot of actors. Because, like, I mean, I've often talked a lot on this show about, like, some directors like Sam Raimi are not, um, you know, great with actors. They're just really great directors and they're great filmmakers. Um, but they're not necessarily like so focused on making sure that the actor's performance is transcendent. Um, (laughs) but there is something especially about Jeff Goldblum in the fly where he does have that like wide eyed optimism and the same sort of, uh, vocal mannerisms and inflections that he might have in something like Jurassic park, um, and just like his goofiness that he has yeah. at the very beginning, um, yeah, I think. That but he first, grounds that in such a reality that you can relate to. Yeah, I L- think that first that first maybe forty five minutes of the fly is maybe the most charming and approachable yeah. uh, forty five minutes of all of Cronenberg's films. And it's funny because like you know that's such a significantly bigger commercial hit than any of the other films he made. Um, 
but it's it's you know very clearly like another disease film with a tragic ending and for that to be a bigger success than anything else that he made like is it just because it's you know, a special effects heavy monster movie in the summer of aliens. Is it because Jeff Goldblum, Gina Davis are so likable as characters? I mean, I think it's everything. I think, I I mean, it's, it's probably one of his more conventional films, but it's also one that manages to be, it's an elevated genre film. It's like, like I've read like uh, a couple people dismissing a history of violence and Eastern promises because it's like, Oh, it's Cronenberg deciding he wants to make gangster genre films. And like, but you, don't you notice that he is still, um, compelled to focus on the psychology of these characters too. It's not like he's suddenly going, Oh, I just want to tell a mafia movie. I, you know, like he's doing it lazily. No, he's really, he's doing it in a Cronenberg style and having moments like that, that, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the knife fight in the bathhouse. Yeah. Well, the, the, the sexual components and you, I, and I say sexual kind of in a broad sense, cause you, I'm, I'm throwing even just the extended male nudity, you know, in that, in that bathhouse sequence. But like that, that seems to be the things that he's smuggling into the commercial films. Like the, right. uh, the, the sexual component of history of violence is what people, when it came out, seemed to be the people that didn't like it, that spoke to me about it. That was the thing that threw them off was the sexual aspects of it, not the violence of it. Um, because they, you know, it revealed them to be kind of conservative in their tastes and for them to have the 69 scene with the married couple or even the, uh, the scene on the stairs. Um, I mean, crash, I understand why people get thrown by the sex and that, but history of violence played to like a middle America crowd. And like, they, they're not used to that kind of element in an action thriller. Um, Oh, I, I love that shit. I mean, that's just, oh, yeah. it's the same thing with like, you know, with when I saw, um, even something like Boogie Nights in the theater and, you know, there's a long sex scene in there. People, if, if you're seeing a movie in suburban Northwestern Indiana, um, <laughs> and they're just not, like, all they're hearing is, oh, this is one of the best movies of the year from guys like Siskel and Ebert or whatever. And they're just going based on what they're reading in a newspaper and they go see something like that and they're so turned off by it. It, it excites me. Because well, I don't know why it just makes me happy. Maybe it's just like the, um, uh, the, the I never really like tapped into that uh, rebellious teenager in me. Like I never acted out. I never did crazy drugs and did all this stuff to mm-hmm. act out against my parents or rebel. And I never really did anything like that. But there's this rebellious nature in me when, like I'm in an audience of people hating something or really like uncomfortable with something and I'm loving it. Like I think when filmmakers are audacious and actively choose to challenge their audience and their audience isn't prepared for it, I think that's awesome. <laughs> like I just yeah. I mean it might just again it might just be like a very simplistic that's cool. I'm so glad that the filmmaker did that. Well that, well, that's something that's consistent from the beginning. I mean it, with Cronenberg challenging the audience is pretty I mean, pretty much the name of the game in like almost everything he's made. Um, if you think I like about him. It. Yeah. I mean, even something like uh, and Butterfly, you know, is challenging on on some level. You know, the the audience maybe maybe to its detriment because it's asking the audience to accept that Jeremy Irons is is blind to the fact that this you know this man in drag is his fantasy woman. Right. Um, and to the point where it doesn't really 
make any effort to disguise that character from the the audience. I mean, they don't show him out of out of drag, but it's still the way it's photographed. It's it's and the, the dialogue clues. It's not the crying game, um, but the crying game was what people ultimately wanted. Then they wanted that surprise. Um, I, I mean, even just the uh, I think we were talking about like just the disgusting imagery of something like Naked Lunch, and like that kind of. The bleak tone and or the kind of off-putting imagery is the thing that keeps most of those films from crossing over. I mean, Videodrome being one, uh, Crash, of course, being one, uh, Naked Lunch being one. Um, that that willingness to uh, engage in unpleasant, you know, images... Uh, I don't know. That, that seems to be something that the, the newer films don't quite have. It made the violence you know, in something like uh, Eastern Promises might feel strong because it's so uh, visceral, visceral and, not, and, yeah. not, and not surrounded by... You don't get desensitized to it happening throughout the film. Um, so when it does erupt, it, it feels very, uh, you know, a lot more impactful. Um, but, I mean, even something like Maps to the Stars, I mean, the violence in that, it's, it's, it's still blunt, um, but it's... It's surrounded by like uh, satire, so it, it has a different feel um, than the early films. But I mean, the, the violence and, and the special effects seem to be as much the ideas were were smarter than the average grindhouse films. I mean, the the actual depiction of on screen violence was so graphic for in this in the horror films that that was. I mean, that's what set him apart as much as the ideas being more philosophical than you know, the Halloween kind of films that he was grouped with. <laughs> yeah. He's a, I, I think what I appreciate about him is that he's a provocateur and yet he's still able to, for the most part, manage to connect on a human level. Mm-hmm. Um, the fly is one of the few horror movies where the, like I cry, like at the very end of that movie, I don't know what it is, and it's probably just because, like, I, you know, have had had um, some kind of like. Even if Jeff Goldblum's character really does turn into an asshole, um, I still care about that character. And when he's fully transformed, and you know, he wants to die, and he, you know, like that 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 image of him, you know, asking her to shoot him in the head really fucking gets to me. And I'm like, that's that's rare. Like, I don't know if every single Cronenberg movie hits me on that level. But even something like History of Violence, I don't necessarily cry, but I get really emotionally invested in, in, in the story and the characters. And I think that's that's kind of rare to happen with a lot of uh, modern-day horror filmmakers. But I think what's interesting about Cronenberg, too, is that he's, he refuses to um, put himself in a box to say, like, okay, I'm a schlocky horror filmmaker or... You know, even with his run with Viggo Mortensen, I'm just going to be interested in psych- psychological character studies. And now with his most recent run, I guess, like, I'm really interested in this Robert Pattinson guy. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, he, he, he I, I just don't know where he's going. And I think that's what I find exciting about him, even if I don't connect with every single movie that he's done. But at the same time, I, I do defend something like a dangerous method because that has been dismissed by even some of the Cronenberg's biggest fans. Um, yeah, because like there's not a lot of the shock element 
it's it's essentially like Cronenberg t- t- does a period piece essentially. Right. It's it's treated like his Age of Innocence. It's yeah. Like people give it begrudging respect, but it's so far off the map from what they're used to that. Yeah, I, I know some people that think it's really a, a major misfire, and I, I know other people that, that see it as one of the best of the uh, of the recent films. Uh, I I think it might be my favorite uh, of the post Spider films, although. Cosmopolis has been growing on me with repeat viewing, and it feels hmm. closer to Cronenberg of the of the period, um, you know, the Crash uh, Spider period than um, than everything else. Although I, I I think the only film of his I really don't care for of everything because I I watched over yeah I watched twenty nine different you know shorts and features to prepare for this. The only one I really don't care for is Maps to the Stars. And I've watched it three times now. It's because I, it's so tonally off. Like, I I want to like it, even though I'm like, okay, it's a Hollywood satire. But it's Cronenberg, so... And I like the cast. And, you know, Julianne Moore, she's hamming it up and almost like playing Lindsay Lohan in it. So, so yeah. I'm like, I'm, I want to love it. But, I mean, it might be one that I rewatch a couple years from now. And uh, try to like more, but I don't. I yeah. don't really see that happening, and it's, it's a shame. Yeah. It's not boring. Like I, it's I've, not. I mean, I, I'm entertained by, it, and I, I think just trying to piece it in with the earlier films is interesting, like on an intellectual game playing level. But as far as an actual piece of work to put aside everything else, it feels it feels the most off to me yes. and I, and, but it's it's yeah but like you know someone else might say crash is the misfire like it's very subjective but well, I mean, crash, me, crash is yeah. at least consistent in tone and what it's trying to convey to its audience and as much as i maybe i'm just put off by it personally i i respect yeah. it it's well, uh, I, and yet like i mean god scorsese was on with ebert um Back when you know there was Siskel and Ebert and at the movies and all that um, mm-hmm. on TV, and I think they were doing their best of the decade episode. And oh, when yeah. Scorsese put Crash on his top ten of the decade, I thought, "What am I? Why am what? I just well, like I like yelled at the screen, like, what? What am I missing here? What's, what's going fun- on? What's funny and- that you mentioned Roger Ebert and Crash because even though he wasn't as famous a uh, a critic of Cronenberg as he was of David Lynch. Uh, Roger Ebert was pretty consistent in trashing most of the major Cronenberg films. Even The Fly? Not The Fly and not The Dead Zone. Okay. And I think I think not Shivers back in the uh, in the 70s, but The Brood, Videodrome, Dead Ringers, Naked Lunch, um, a lot of them he just found them really off-putting. Um, sometimes in ways that he couldn't always articulate. Read the Dead Ringers review. But he just finds them clammy and ugly. Uh, Videodrome, I think he called one of the least entertaining films ever made, I think. Like, he, he, was pretty, he was pretty harsh on Cronenberg, but when Crash came out, he gave it three and a half out of four stars. And it reminded me, in a way, of his <laughs> review of Mulholland Drive, because Mulholland Drive, he not only gave four stars to, but he wrote like multiple essays championing that film. And um, I think what it appealed to him was the the go-for-broke fearlessness of it really appealed to him, I think, intellectually, that here was a film that would risk dividing the audience into half cheers, half boos, that was totally blunt uh, with, you know, what it was trying to do. And I think that, um, you know, that, that you can then see 
something like Existence or Spider, like all the films that follow that all get positive reviews. Eastern Promises gets four stars. And I think um, Cosmopolis he did not care for. But, the, uh, but everything else that follows Crash, it, it's funny, if you, if you read Ebert long enough, it's like he, he gets very protective of some people, but then if he's, if he's decided that he's against them, he tends to be consistent. And uh, it seemed like Crash won him over so that everything else that he made subsequently got a better review. I mean, that just could be uh. my observation. I don't know if Cronenberg just grew on him, but it was, I, I wrote to him about De- Dead Ringers, and I, I forget what he told me, but... Uh, you um, know, that's interesting. I will, I will sort of, very briefly here, recently watching this um, documentary called Hot Girls Wanted, which I didn't like. It was not very well done. There's a section in it, I mean, it talks about amateur porn and, you know, how girls basically get suckered into this uh, lifestyle, especially out in Florida, where porn is king. And uh, there's this uh, brief section in this documentary where they feature these extreme fetishes to where I just fast forward through it because of how much it, it disgusted me, the idea of... Guys getting off on, you know, girls vomiting. I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, so maybe, it, like, just the, Crash taps into something regarding the extreme fetish of pornography. Like, just there's there's stuff out there that I don't find sexy or erotic that, like, literally disgusts me. And the fact that there are people out there that do, that do find it erotic to, like, um, you know... Uh, just degrade and uh, really, um, what's the word I'm thinking of, objectify women in such a disgusting manner that maybe what Crash is trying to tap into a little bit is just like how dehumanizing pornography is and how it's, he's just taking the sexy out of sex in Crash and maybe that's what pisses me off about it or you know that there's just something maybe personal or primal about crash that i that i think offends me but it's not necessarily like the fact that he made the movie because clearly i like the book yeah <laughs> it's interesting that you like the book and don't like the film i know right but, but i think a lot of it has to do with like there's there's something about reading it and picturing it what it could be in your mind rather than actually seeing it on screen yeah um and also, you know who I think is an interesting actress that I don't think is making any movies anymore, or at least recently, is Teb- uh, Deborah Kara Ungar. A friend of mine wants to cast her in something he's developing, so hopefully he can get her. <laughs> Fascinating actress. Like, just a really interesting look, and I don't know, just there's something about her very... She's, like, really mysterious. <laughs> like, I don't know how, any other way to describe her, but um, I, yeah. like, I, I think she was in, like, The Game... A couple other things. Yeah, she was in a hotel room that David Lynch series um, that was made between Lost Highway, uh, Firewalk with Me and Lost Highway. Oh, I mean, I could see her fitting into the David Lynch world too, very, very easily. But like, yeah, yeah I mean, that's what I always say with Crash that oh, maybe there's like something Freudian in my subconscious, like <laughs> that it just it turns me off. But like, I do, I do want to say like a dangerous method. I don't think it is. It is the definitive. Uh, young and Freud movie because I think like even you know psychology graduates will sort of frown on that movie because it's not as focused on the relationship between Young and Freud. It's focused on um, 
Oh, gosh, Kira Knightley's character, I forgot her last Sabina, name. Sabina. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's focused on that relationship more. Um, which is fine, but I think also there's just some criticism that it's Cronenberg's interpretation of what that relationship was, but not necessarily the reality of it. Um, yeah, well, it's again, it's 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 Christopher Hampton also. I mean, as the right. author of that of that piece, and sure. I think that the um, like that's the thing that makes it trickier to talk about these films is when we talk about Cronenberg's attitudes. It's I mean, it is it is him, but it's him fusing to use the word he always. It, all the post fly adaptation seems to bring up it's him fusing with Hampton and and his take on it but i mean you you think it's about filter, yeah it's filtered through different interpretations yeah well, well one thing that i do find interesting about well about the the last few years of cronenberg's uh, career is his jewish identity seems to be finally coming out in the work after really not exploring it even remotely for most of his career um, you find traces of it in almost all the recent work. And with um, Dangerous Method, it's like the way Freud is wary of Jung's more kind of fantastic ideas getting explored because he's afraid it will be denounced as Jewish mysticism. And the, uh, yeah, good call. the, way, the way that Sabina's character and it is... Um, like there's that threat for the Jewish characters in the film that, that uh, it's not like it's hammered over the head, but it's like the first time he's really dealing with that. I mean, in a way, Existence might be some of the first uh, to deal with his fear of extinction um, by forces that like, because it's inspired by the Salman Rushdie thing. And so the, um, you know his 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 you know in in that in that instance of course it's like you know uh, Muslim extremists uh, seeking out this artist and his paranoia. I was reading interviews with him and he used to have some kind of like uh, dormant kind of paranoia about people wanting to harm him because of his Jewishness, even though he's like an outspoken atheist. And what I'm finding in a lot of the recent short subject work also is like a uh, little nod to that. I mean, Maps to the Stars only has that one kind of anti-Semitic line from the little Justin Bieber character, uh, kind of blasting his agent. Um, but the, uh, did you ever see a short film he did called, um, it's a long title uh, at the suicide of the last Jew in the world, in the last cinema in the world. What? No. Cronenberg stars in it himself. It's, it's basically this like, what is it? Like a two minute long short film that was done for a festival that is televising the suicide of the last Jew on Earth in the last movie theater on Earth. And it's both kind of a dark fantasy of what would happen if the Hezbollah types uh, you know, got their wish and all Jews were exterminated. But also, you know, you know, it's also about the death of cinema in that I guess the way technology is changing the art form, the old way is... is 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 potentially uh Cronenberg's mind it's already it's already over and it's it's just a matter of time before that's gone also um so it's it's a way to use some kind of very like you know horrific ideas to push that oh. you know that point like it's tying them together in a way that's very provocative and much uh more abrasive work than the features uh from this same period because it's pretty recent huh um Wow, that's yes. crazy! You're you're opening up a whole new can of worms because, like, I never really 
associate Cronenberg as a political filmmaker. Like I see him as, you know, commenting on on the social structure and identity and being fascinated with psychology and you know his infatuation with technology and all that stuff is pretty much on the surface and you can interpret it that way. But the idea of like interpreting existence with a political subtext kind of excites me to where I want to watch it again with that with that idea in mind. Yeah, well, assassination is a recurring yeah. theme in a lot of the work. I mean, it no, goes, that's true. It goes back pretty far, um, and uh, it's and it even goes to something as recently as Cosmopolis, where the uh, mm-hmm. that the um, that the one banking official is murdered on television. Yeah, there's this uh, one, there's that one uh, sort of. Uh, um, what's the word I'm thinking of? But the guy, the guy with the cream pies. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but even before that, when they're in the limo, the um, who is it? The uh, the, the International Monetary Fund uh, character is like murdered uh, on television. Oh yeah. And um, you know, I mean, the assassinations come into everything from like the Dead Zone, Videodrome. Um, you know, the, but the uh, I mean, you think about like Cronenberg, political filmmaker. You know, and you look at. I mean, I don't know if I can totally untangle what he's trying to say about capitalism in Cosmopolis, because it's like both the extremes of capitalism and the uh, the extremes of like the uh, Occupy movement seem to be not totally flatteringly depicted in it. Um, Cosmopolis is a mess, but it's an interesting mess. Um, that's a movie that's like total peaks and valleys and ebbs and flows, because there's like, oh my god, the Samantha Morton stuff is great. But then there's like a lull and I'm not too into the barbershop scene. Um, and then all of a sudden the Paul Giamatti stuff just fucking rules. Like I love that, that the, the, the exchange between the two of them. And there's this one long shot between them that they're like framed between like a window or something. I don't know if yeah. it's like, yeah, I mean, just, it's, it's a long shot that sort of just sits there where Paul Giamatti is just like really, um, reflecting on his life and how it differs so vastly from um you know Robert Pattinson's life and I I I love that that's another um sort of uh Cronenbergian touch of focusing on the extremes of of you know different people and just like how we crash into each other in that way like we just we we yeah. want to have an effect and we can't and then there's you know, the rich versus the poor like I think a lot of the dialogue with Samantha Morton and her sort of being the um I think that she calls herself like the I forgot the capitalist um, expert of some kind in that and like all the stuff that she says is kind of a summation of what I think Delillo's themes are in the book about capitalism overtaking us and the idea of the rat as currency and a lot yeah. of interesting. There's so much interesting things in that movie. Yeah. Um, and in well, the book, it's just so hard to cram it all in. Well, it's funny too because the uh, what Sabina in um, in uh, Dangerous Method has the ideas about uh, you know the instinct to create being tied to the uh, instinct for destruction, and that that kind of idea yeah. comes up again in Cosmopolis, the urge to destroy. Um, you know, being a creative urge. I think they, they they say like it's both a hallmark of anarchist and capitalist ideology. Yep, yep, so, that's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's so really interesting to me. Yeah, it, I mean that that film. I mean, like, it's it seems to be the one that ties most of his like th- it, that brings a lot of the old concerns back as far as like a man merged with technology in the way that he, he's merged with his vehicle. The limo becomes his office. It becomes his private. Uh, bubble, you know, traveling through the world, kind of like 
hermetically sealed. And the way that the interior is photographed, it reminds me of the technology in the fly or the technology of, of like the way like the way the surfaces are photographed yeah, like it, it, they glow and yeah that's it's really interesting and i like he's constantly trying to have sex with his wife to have some sort of real human moment yeah uh, and then like the <laughs> i just i'll never forget like the prostate exam and like just the idea of the prostate being asymmetrical is like him focusing on that as like a a physical defect um, yeah you know, it reminds me of Dead Ringers too, and that the uh, yeah the, the the mysteries of the human body and the way that reminded me the most. I don't. I have you read the the, the Lolo novel? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. The, the is, I've read a couple of his stuff, his work, and I think it's really really crazy good. Is that is that uh, as asymmetrical prostate element in the book? I don't recall that. Because that feels the most like Cronenberg's own voice cropping up again. I don't think it, I don't think it is. I think I, do, I think that is a Cron, Cronenberg touch for the film. Um, and it's yeah, it's just and it's really interesting how that sort of comes back to like Giamatti and Pat, Pattinson having that human moment of realizing they both have an asymmetrical prostate and then realizing yeah, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> like that yeah. that that really. That's what I kind of love the last twenty minutes of Cosmopolis so much. So much, but there are sections of that movie that feel too detached for me. Well, it's funny, yeah, well, it's funny because the ending of Cosmopolis reminds me so much of Videodrome, but the ending of Videodrome played out to like a twenty-minute crawl, which is why I understand that even people that like parts of Cosmopolis might find that ending to be very. Uh, bleak and slow and like extended I, I mean i think i think it's a really risky way to end your film agreed um which is yeah, attracts me like intellectually like that 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 was <laughs> that's how he would choose to end the movie uh, and and to even leave it ambiguous because it's not really uh clear whether or not he's killed at the end um i mean it's kind of does can, that with existence to some degree oh totally does yeah, yeah. um yeah, and which again, the last film that came out with his own original screenplay. <laughs> um, so I don't even know. Is that the ending of the book? Also, yes. That it's ambiguous. Uh, yes, fairly, fairly so. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I just remember, like, I mean, that's a short book too, and it's like I, I, I was really impressed with the fact that uh, a lot of the dialogue is pretty much verbatim. Um, and I remember reading the book too and going, this could be a play, um, because of how much dialogue is in it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I, I really find, I find DeLillo's kind of cynicism interesting, but yet he's still, um, hopeful that we could sort of reconstruct themselves and I, th- ourselves as a society. Uh, and I think Cronenberg just, you, you know, we mentioned that sort of need for self-destruction and recreation, yeah. um, I'm surprised, like, fire doesn't come up a lot more in Cronenberg's work the way it does for Lynch, because, well, like, that's always such an element of well, bad, recreation. Bad, bad CGI fire is one of the things I hate most uh, about Maps to the Stars. So uh, maybe, yeah. maybe it's a good thing that he doesn't really indulge yeah. that anymore. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned plays, because the last three could be plays, and, and, and Dangerous oh, yeah. Method was. I mean, it's derived from, uh, was it Talking Cure? Uh, I mm-hmm. forget the title. Yeah, but, yeah like, I'm pretty um, sure that was. Because Mopolis definitely feels a lot like a play, and then uh, Maps is maybe too over the place in terms of the locations, but it's it's again it's like foregrounding dialogue much more. I mean, you know, 
talk is definitely a part of all the films going back to even the old horror films, but the, uh, I don't know, maybe just because there's so much dialogue, Cosmopolis is almost all wall to wall, um, dialogue. I mean, there's no, it's, there's no, there's no action per se in it. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I saw that one with him, uh, introducing it in New York and I went Mm. into it cold. I hadn't read the book and that audience was like a little bit, like most Cosmopolis audiences, probably like it, like a little bit un, un, uncertain as to what to make of it all, because uh, it's it's a lot to absorb on one viewing. I think watching it, I, this may be the third time I've seen it for um, this last week, and I think it's it's definitely one where I it's like Crash, where it's like the more times I see it, the more relaxed I find myself with it, because it's it is a, it is a challenging film. Uh, and it is a very cold film, but I, watching, I think yeah. watching it this time, I thought of Hell Hartley with the way people deliver dialogue, uh-huh. and where it's very it, it's sort of divested of human interaction and emotions in the way that we talk, and I could see that being off putting. Like I, I, I don't think Patrick ever got through Cosmopolis, and I think yeah. that you know the idea of you know just being dehumanized to that extreme to where when even when people interact, there's just no sign of human life, any humanity left. It's hard to really engage with that world. Um, yeah. I find Cosmopolis a little more interesting than Crash, probably because there is more dialogue, and dialogue that wouldn't be out of place in something like Waking Life, right. where you know it's just like you know intellectualizing and philosophizing and sort of trying to analyze why we are the way we are or where society is headed. That kind of stuff is always interesting to me, like... I can listen to that shit for hours and hours. That's probably why I listen to a lot of podcasts because that's yeah. what people do. Well, um, it, it is the most rapid fire as far as like dialogue with ideas being yeah. thrown at you constantly. But it's funny because like the very, very early uh, pre-horror movie, David Cronenberg, you know, the films like Stereo and Crumbs of the Future are just littered with jargon. Um, have you ever seen those films, the avant-garde films he did before? I have not seen... Oh God, I don't think I've seen either of those. No, I've... There, I assume there, camera. That's probably the one. That's the one on the uh, Videodrome. Yeah, yeah, Criterion. Yeah. That one's really good. Yeah, I like camera. But the um, when he first started out, like the first things that he did that were not student films, um, well, student shorts, because his first film, uh, Transfer, I've never seen. That's about uh, a psychotherapist. I think that's actually coming out on Blu-ray in the UK as part of like a really fancy edition of Videodrome that will have all of his early. Uh, short film work. Hmm. Um, but the uh, stereo and crimes of the future are interesting because they're very much informed by this one actor. Um, what is his name? It's on the tip of my tongue. It is Ron Blodzik, who was this kind of very fashionable gay young actor um, that was like part of, I guess the campus or, or like the, the, I don't think he went to school with Cronenberg or if he was just part of like the underground hmm. art film community there in Toronto. But he, um, he plays the lead character in all the early films and they have like this very, um, it, almost like the way uh, Michla- Michelangelo Antonioni uses locations that are very almost kind of like futuristic and alien looking to kind of give you a sense of the future without really using any technology to establish the future. The, um, they they feel like these science fiction films with no special effects really that are like almost delivered like they're they're shot non sync sound and have like a lot of 
very dense narration that has a lot of jargon. So it's like on the one hand, you're seeing like these really beautiful images with like these very you know, maybe kind of amateur kind of, you know, student film kind of acting, but like done silent, but like these really compelling in these really compelling like places. Um, but with the, this, this voiceover that's like very scientific sounding with like total bullshit science. <laughs> so they're like, they, they feel like, films from another planet it's hard yeah. to really describe i think i think one of them maybe both of them are online i think stereo is on the scanners blu-ray from criterion and they were both packaged with the blue underground release of fast company um they're really inaccessible but they're kind of beautiful and strange if you're in the right mood for them they're they make even crash look very commercial huh. um but they are Interesting, and he actually was the DP on them, and they're maybe prettier looking films than a lot of what comes later, interestingly. Like, they're very well shot. And I think you could even see hints of things to come as far as, like, the body horror and telepathy and things that would reappear in the commercial films. Um, but they're an interesting... It's interesting to see when a filmmaker emerges from avant-garde work and then goes into commercial work like if the old concerns are kind of like hidden in there. And that's definitely the case with David Cronenberg's like pre-commercial work. It's funny to think of him having, him having like several years as an underground filmmaker making non-commercial films. But I mean, everything prior to Shivers uh, was that. Um, but I rewatched those again. Uh, first time I, cause I went to all the locations for a lot of these films last year, just in my personal like free time, and it also changes the way they play out for me because I, I I walked in those buildings. <laughs> oh man, that's see, yeah, that's a huge reason why I want to visit Toronto too. I wouldn't mind doing a Cronenberg tour of sorts, uh, like to see the uh, the warehouse where the fly was filmed, stuff like that. Yeah. By the way, have you have <laughs> did you see Enemy? I love it. Okay. Because that, yeah, that to me is like that, total Cronenberg. Well, and not just because of this. Well, that, that actress is in three of the, uh, three, the most recent three That's films. right, yeah. And, well, you know, the whole spider imagery and stuff, it's, oh, it totally. keeps, keeps popping up. That's one of the things I also really like um, about Spider, too, is just um, he, he, he's sort of, uh, you know, cleverly. Uh, trying to think of the right way to phrase this but just inserts um interesting imagery throughout like the broken glass with um you know there's this one moment in the film where a uh i guess an inmate of sorts because he's staying at like a halfway house for the mentally ill and um well not an inmate then uh just a, a, a mentally ill patient uh yeah has a breakdown breaks a bunch of glass uh, Ray finds takes a piece of the glass, and you think he's going to do something with that glass, and again, sort of subverting your expectations of what's going to happen. And then later on, um, Ray finds gives the piece of glass back um, to uh, a guard and or or a caseworker or someone, and he puts the glass back together in almost like a puzzle-like fashion. And it, yeah. it forms this beautiful spider web imagery. Like the glass just looks like a spider web. And, and yeah. like, I just love little touches like that where like, okay, yeah, the movie's called spider. The character's named spider, but like, it's just, it shows a fractured state of mind. I think there is something, it, it's, it is a sort of a departure for Cronenberg in that it's, you know, a lot slower and sort of restrained and more mature, but it's also really 
um, empathic uh, of him to really delve into psychosis and delusion and dysfunction and what it's like to have the subjective experience of, of a schizophrenic to where it also comments on the fragility of memory because you're again, the, the unreliable narrator clearly, because I, when I first saw this right. movie, I, I was like, okay, I'm on board for this until, uh, Rafe until like, okay. Like I realized we were in a flashback mode, but then the, um, his parents, played by Gabriel Byrne and uh, Miranda Richardson, go into a bar. And when I was when I first saw this movie, I'm like, okay, you've lost me here because why would the kid have memories of their parents going into a bar when the kid is back at home sleeping or at home right. alone? So why would that happen? But then you see it a second time, and oh, he's clearly making this up. He's writing all this down, or at least this is his memory of what could have happened or what might have right. happened with his parents. And I love the subjectivity of of the experience he's having in this movie. Yeah, well, it's an interesting because like subjective reality is a recurring theme in a lot of the films, and it's usually the thing that throws people off the most. Like Videodrome, Naked Lunch, uh, yeah, you know, Naked Lunch. Too. I mean, a lot of them are, you know, I mean, things like Videodrome and, and Naked Lunch. The first time I saw them, yeah, especially Videodrome. The first time I saw, it, I was quite lost by the second half of the film because I didn't quite understand that it was all a subjective, it's, it's his perception of events, you know, uh, not, not necessarily what's really happening. Yeah. So I was going to ask about that. Yeah. Cause we talked about this, um, you know, uh, in email, uh, about, you know, that last half and how you said that the, uh, I guess when he starts like the hallucinations really start taking off, like that does that throw you out of the film a little bit? A little bit. I but I mean it's also okay, he's putting on this that that machine to record mm-hmm. his hallucinations, I guess. Yes. So it's pretty much the last half hour an entire hallucination to where none of that really happened. So is it to suggest that James Woods didn't really kill himself at the end of the movie? No, no, no. I think that what is well, I mean, it's it, maybe it's ambiguous, but I, the way I read it is that he's being maybe triggered the hallucinations with that machine uh, into uh, murdering um, the uh, woman okay. that is uh, selling the softcore porn right. to the channel. Um, but he's using they're using like the like the S and M imagery of the relationship with the Deborah Harry character, but he's I don't know if he's carrying out the murder himself or if it's happening, you know, in another. Uh, in another part of, you know, that whole structure where he is, it's, 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 I mean, it's when he wakes up with the dead body and then the dead body's not there. I mean, at that point, it's like you're, you're in total hallucination territory, but what, 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 I mean, what, what the insertion of the, of the videotape in his chest really means literally it's, it's essentially about brainwashing and that he's carrying out the assassination, but then Bianca oblivion, brainwashes him to kill the uh the videodrome people kill uh, Barry Convex at the uh spectacular optical <laughs> I, but then I love Cronenberg's but, names of characters by the way <laughs> Oh yeah yeah they're they're not ones you find in the phone book I think is a famous quote yeah. <laughs> But uh yeah the uh but even just the ending where I think he's been brainwashed 
to kill himself because his usefulness to the anti-videodrome kind of uh, Bianca Oblivion uh, faction has outlived its usefulness and he's, you know, wanted man now and he could potentially uh, give away secrets about how he was conditioned to become this. But it's, I mean, it's, you know, but I think the fact that it's so open to interpretation is one of the reasons that that film was really not well liked in, you know, by test audiences or a lot of critics. They just found it too confusing. It is kind of a confusing film the first time you see it. And even, you know, multiple viewers. I, yeah. Be. I'm st- it still loses me a little bit. And I, th- I don't mind that though. That's what's kind of interesting about, I like the experience of Videodrome. Um, yeah. It's funny. Cause like, you know, my dad not being the biggest movie guy in the world, sometimes when he loved the movie, he really loved it. He loved the fly. Um, mm-hmm. But when he hated the movie, he really hated Videodrome. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, because you know, I mean, he he was into science fiction, not necessarily into horror, and like, the, I I don't know how the, that movie was advertised at the time, uh, but is it? I think he was he was fooled into thinking maybe it could be his kind of movie, and then when he actually saw it, he just hated it so much. <laughs> and I can understand yeah. people really uh, tuning that movie out, and yet it's 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 definitely one of Cronenberg's uh, most cited films in terms of like upper tier Cronenberg is, as, oh. and I, I, I agree to some extent. I think in terms of being accessible and digestible, at least for me, I think Existence is a little bit more fun and I can comprehend it more easily uh, just in terms of like what's going on, uh, especially mm-hmm. like as things really sort of play out and. Um, twists happen throughout the you know the latter half of the movie. I I, I think it's just more playful, and that's what I love about it. But I th- I, I I think yeah. Videodrome is still one of the more fascinating films in Cronenberg's career, and that it's it's sort of like again, um, it's like a it's like a premonition of things to come for what technology does to us or how we corrupt technology and. Like I I once heard that with every new technology we corrupt it with. Um, you know, sexuality, more or less. Like with with video cameras, the first thing we want to do is tape ourselves having sex or tape sex. And you know, yeah. with uh, the internet, same thing. And with phones, yeah. so it's just it just v- keeps happening. V- yeah, VCRs. I mean, yeah. you know, adult films were one of the first things to really help sell that tool. <laughs> and I think Cronenberg taps into that with a lot of his films, and that's what I I respect him for. That I really respect him for having the balls <laughs> to really uh, go all out with most of his films and tackle these things that most filmmakers sort of shy away from. Um, and like even stuff in existence, like just the bioports themselves uh, and, you know, the little, the little pods, everything is represented in some sexual fashion. Um, and I, I really like that. And I, I, I don't know why crash because it's, Probably just maybe it's because the sexuality is so on the on, on the surface and so in your face that it's almost like a movie that's screaming out at me, even though it's a quiet, slow, languid film. I don't know, but yeah. overall, um, and you know, even though we didn't touch upon Naked Lunch as much, probably because I didn't get to rewatch it for this episode, I will say yeah. that I, I another thing I love about the fact that Cronenberg took the Naked Lunch novel and made it his own and sort of decided not to... I mean, that's, a, that's again, it's one of those unfilmable books to where he just decided to 
tell the William S. Burroughs story in a very sort of subjective way. It's just like his own interpretation of what that world would be like and almost incorporating a film noir quality to it. And God, again, Peter Weller, fucking phenomenal in that movie. Oh yeah. Hilarious. Yeah. And if you've ever got a chance to hear the commentary track, it's, it's one of the best director actor commentaries as far as they're both very smart and, uh, have a lot of compelling things to say about that film. I, Naked Lunch was never one that I, I loved, even though I, I, I've, I've watched it uh, many times over the years, and I think there's a lot to admire in it. It's funny. I watched it this morning, actually, um, for the first time in a long time, and it's the first time I'd seen it since uh, you know, Ornette Coleman passed away this uh, past week. And uh, you know, his his that was maybe my first exposure to his music um, was actually hmm. his collaboration with Howard Shore on the soundtrack to that film. Uh, so I was thinking about that while I was watching it, but um, I, I don't think I'd even read Kerouac or Burroughs or Ginsburg when I first saw Naked Lunch. I think I just rented it because it looked deceptively like a horror science fiction film in the video store when it came out, and it technically falls into that territory. <laughs> but I think it's funny because um, Cronenberg in, in school studied, uh, I think he had an interest in entomology, and the insect imagery is a uh, something that carries through not just that film and the fly and then butterfly and spider and uh but even up to uh did, did you ever see the nest that short film he did i think a year ago i was just about to when i realized i didn't have time this morning but i was about to watch it yeah well it's funny cuz like you uh you mentioned the playful self-reflexive qualities of existence and the nest is definitely one of the most playful things oh, good. he's done because um, it's it's almost kind of like summing up all the the the, uh, the old concerns in a real droll kind of way. Um, I won't spoil it, but insects do come into it. Okay, I just thought of this right off the top of my head. Okay, all you Crash fans out there, why don't you watch a movie called The Duke of Burgundy instead? Yeah, there you go. Watch that shit. It's great. Because I, <laughs> I think that movie's says volumes about sexuality and codependence and kind of the fetish world more or less to some degree. I mean, it's just, it's more, it, it, that's a love story and that I, that I thoroughly connected to and cared about the characters and all that. So, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, one's better than the other, but, uh, I, I'd say they're both, they're both fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> well, I, mean, I, maybe I prefer one, but, uh, I, I I just thought like I was like hmm, I'm trying to think of movies that sort of can you know cover the same territory, but um, we'll we'll sort of get ready to wrap things up here and we've got another sure. fifteen minutes. But I will say uh, some memorable performances. Clearly, you know we're both big Jennifer Jason Lee fans. I think she's great in Existence, but um, mm-hmm. sort of a uh, um, a supporting performance. It's kind of gone under the radar. I mean, I think anybody who sees A Dangerous Method uh, probably won't forget uh, the majority of the performances, particularly by uh, Keira Knightley's Jaw. Um, mm-hmm. I think I think Vincent Cassell shows up oh, yeah. like a thunderbolt in that movie and fucking owns it. <laughs> I just love yeah, him he, in that movie. Yeah, he still seems big time in both that and uh, a more uh, repellent character, but uh, Eastern Promises. Yeah. I no, think he, he's very strong in that yeah, also. Yeah, he definitely is. Um yeah, he shows up as uh, that's another thing is like uh, I mentioned this to you. I I wouldn't mind a spin-off movie with Otto Gross cuz like when he leaves I'm like, "Hmm, I wonder what happened to that guy." You know, I'm just like the part of me wants to see 
the uh, like if I had a choose your own adventure book of dangerous method, I'd be like, hmm, I want to see where Otto Gross goes, because <laughs> like yeah, I, I hear I, in real life that Young really took to heart his <laughs> his ideas surrounding uh, monogamy. Uh, just like he, he, you know, Young real like he was pretty much pro monogamy until he met Otto Gross, and Otto Gross sort of said, "No, that's not how it should be. We're you know animals, and we should be uh, helping our patients if that's what they need." And um, I find that really interesting. Like, I mean, that's sort of the uh, antithesis of what you're supposed to do as a psychologist, psychiatrist, therapist, and yet, like Otto Gross, really fundamentally believed that was uh, something that. Uh, therapists should do, um, which nowadays is completely false. But uh, I, I don't know, like just like the idea of somebody coming in and challenging both um, frames, uh, frameworks from both uh, Freud and Jung is really interesting. Well, speaking of therapists, and I know that you sent me a, uh, an email about Oliver Reed. Uh, oh God! Uh, oh, he's... What uh, what is your take on the brood? I can't remember <laughs> I... if you went into that. I know that you talked about the uh, the quality of the film prints or something uh, in the last Cronenberg episode. I think Patrick likes. The I brood. really like the brood quite a bit. I I um I think it's one of those cases too where like maybe it's maybe I have a stronger reaction or because I've seen things like The Fly um, and Videodrome and you know a couple of his other recent films before the brood. Maybe it didn't quite hit me as hard. As uh, maybe it's like I was desensitized at the point I saw the brood, <laughs> because like if I had seen that first, yeah, that would have fucked me up. Um, and if yeah. I maybe I'd seen it younger, it was one of those horror movies that I just never, uh, you know, rented on VHS back when I was like binging on horror movies, and I don't know necessarily why. Uh, I didn't see it until fairly recently, like within the past ten years uh-huh. or so, and I really do like it. I really like that Cronenberg has this really. Um, sort of nasty take on it's almost and it's also interesting to see um after the master and the the going clear scientology documentary just like i i start to project a little bit onto that uh religious extremism uh or at least just the idea of um psychology as brainwashing uh yeah well the um I don't know how much you know about the background of his personal life when he wrote that, but he was going through a very ugly custody uh, battle right. at the time he wrote it that. It feels very and personal. Yeah. It's, it's, I think even like that, that his wife was maybe involved in some kind of cultish kind of oh, really? sect of some kind. Like the, the autobiographical elements are a little deeper, and I'm a little bit fuzzy on the details, but uh, I, they're a little deeper than I thought. They were because I thought the entire thing was just a fantasy prompted by, you know, an ugly custody battle. But like I think, you know, some of the, uh, the I think there's a lot more autobiographical details to that film than might first be uh, apparent. Like, that was the first Cronenberg film that I saw, oh. and um, so I, I mean, I, I t- told you that I w- that was like a, him and David Lynch were the first directors that I started following like as a fan, as a teenager. But I think. I was aware of Cronenberg the way I was aware of someone like Dario Argento as far as like a cult favorite among horror aficionados, but it took me a long time to really come to their work on my own. Mm-hmm. Like I think I just watched horror films just to be scared and didn't really think about their their makings of or the personalities behind them that much at, the, at a young age. Um, the Brood to me is the only 
really scary horror film of the Cronenberg films. Although I like all the other horror films and actually rabbit has grown on me quite a lot over the years, but I think that, um, I think they're more, they're, they're interesting to me as, as opposed to scary. Um, but the brood I think is actually like, it may be, it's closer to like a conventionally Gothic horror film of all of them, but that one feels like, and, and the score by Howard Shore feels more close to, it feels closer to a traditional horror film than than Rabbit or Shivers or Scanners or the, the others. But I think that that um, I don't know that that, that I, I return to that one maybe the most for pleasure. The way that you said that Existence is one that you would return to for maybe escapism more than some of the other heavier films. Like that one uh, is the one that I probably have watched the most times, just because I I find it so. I mean, even though it's a grim, downbeat film, I find it quite fun. Um, as I just, I you know, this horror. I, I feel, yeah. I again, maybe it's just transference and projection. I feel so much for that, for the daughter, for Candace. Yeah. I feel like devastated for her by the end. Like, oh my god, that is the most trauma anybody can experience in a lifetime. That she's going to have yeah. to process. That like it almost. It, it almost drains me by the end, and then to, to that final reveal at the very end, I'm like, "Oh man, oh yeah!" Like it's just, it is kind of a downer of a film. I I respect it. I I really like it a lot, but it doesn't fill me with <laughs> a happy feeling. And I it, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad movie or anything. It's just, um, it, it's re it's a it's a hard movie to process and stomach um but it's a it's a one of his better films for sure yeah, as far as the assassinations and suicides and assorted tragedies i'm i'm, I'm racking my brain to think of the ones with happy endings <laughs> um yeah you're probably right i mean uh i don't yeah i don't think yeah, there i don't think there is a happy ending i mean eastern promises maybe <laughs> like, um, like that's maybe that's the closest um, I, uh, I, history of violence, maybe. Actually, no. I maybe Crash. Actually, uh, you know, it could be read that <laughs> way, but it, <laughs> but you could read that ending as well. So, um, maybe the next one is the line. Uh, I don't know how. When was the last time you made it all the way to the end of Crash? But the uh, the line maybe the next one could be read in more than one way. Are they are also- they essentially suicidal by the end? Do they just want to die, or are they just looking to? I don't know. Uh, self-destruct or like uh, or find the ultimate orgasm like i just i'm perplexed by what they mean at the very end maybe the next one i know they say it a couple of times in the film i mean you could read it more than one way the way you could read long live the new flesh more than one that's true i mean i think the way that i interpret it like maybe he sees it as you know, with a post-crash kind of perspective, they could be on the same page sexually, uh, and maybe the next one will bring her to that same place, or maybe the next one will kill them. Maybe she's just depressed. Like you could read it however you want to read it. Um, but it's it, it's the fact that it's a cryptic line. I always liked, so I never really put a lot of energy into thinking it had to mean one thing any more than the ending of Videodrome does. I mean, you know the. Uh, I think Cronenberg on the commentary for that suggests that it could be read as, um, you know, the new flesh being bod- bodies that incorporate new technology, um, or it could be, you know, interpreted, I guess, in a um, 
an afterlife kind of way, although I'm sure that he, in the commentary, he pretty much dismisses that interpretation personally. But, you know, those kind of cryptic endings, um, I mean, they make for fun conversations leaving the movie theater if you go see. That's what I respect the most about the majority of his films, really, is... Yeah, there's always a lot to talk about. I mean, I think that's probably what bums me out about Maps of the Stars. Like, I don't really find a whole lot to talk about after that movie's over, whereas, like, everything else, there's there's just so much. Like, we could probably do a part three in the future, and hopefully he continues to make really interesting films and at least three or more that we can dissect later and down the road, but... Well, he, he struggles to get financing, oh, yeah. and I know that Maps of the Stars and Cosmopolis were both difficult to fund, and, and given the receptions they've gotten, and he's in his 70s now. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me uh, if he continued just focusing on novels, because um, I, I, I doubt either one of us had a chance to read Consumed, his first novel, which I picked up, but I did not get a chance to read it in time for this podcast. I will I will um, get to it. I am curious. I'd like to read him on, you know, through the written word and see what uh see what story he's telling in in in, in that uh medium for sure. You know, I think well, what really sticks with me, I mean, because obviously the 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 central thesis of Cronenberg for the most part is the idea of um, you know, technology is an extension of the human body, and mm-hmm. that that final moment of the fly, where you know he literally is um, enmeshed with the pod, with the technology, really it gets to me, like on a, on a you know emotional level, because like he is so enamored with his uh, creation, and you know it, it's it's brought him so much joy and. It's what ultimately destroys him too. I find that like I, I mean, as much as like the fly can sort of be looked at as a genre exercise, a quality horror film, or good escapism, there is a lot going on, at least to me, in that movie that sort of is a summation of what Cronenberg is to me and what makes him one of my favorite filmmakers. Uh, what's interesting, yeah, what's interesting about the emotional component of The Fly is that it seems like... I mean, you could make an argument for there being an emotional core to The Brood, for sure. Oh, yeah, no, I, like, I wouldn't deny that. I, I, I can see that completely. But I would say that The Dead Zone, maybe because he was working with outside material for the first time, outside of Fast Company, um, the fact that that put him in touch with like a very moving love story... Uh, and that's is given as much focus as you know maybe the the supernatural element of the of the dead zone. I mean, what you take away from that is 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 also the tragic romance with Walken and the Brooke Adams character. It seems like that fi- uh, finding that tone um, really seemed to he he took that and could blend it with the um, the body horror mad scientist aspects of the earlier original films, uh, so that the fly feels like a fusion of the old body horror with like this kind of newfound uh, romantic sensibility, tragic romantic sensibility. And I think that might be why uh, so many people connect with that one the most, because it has real feeling that you could latch onto. It's not as chilly as, as a lot of his films, but I don't mind chilly. I mean, crash is my, maybe my favorite, (laughs) which is really chilly. And so is dead ringers, but like, uh, you know, the flies, uh, maybe warmth to it is probably uh, increasingly rare in, in a lot of what 
surrounds it yeah uh in his body work i mean but that the dead zone it seems like that that seems to be like maybe one of i know that was something he took just to keep working um like that was definitely like a professional assignment as much as something that he was jonesing to do (laughs) but uh i think that that gave him that, that like allowed him to really perfect the kind of uh emotional warmth that the fly really kind of then further drives home and that's I, I mean, I, it's not, it's never been one that was ever in my like top, uh, Cronenberg films, but watching it again, I mean, I totally get why people think it might be his best film. It's a very enjoyable film and, uh, it doesn't sacrifice smart ideas at the expense of, I mean, I think if, if, if anything, I think I almost, I almost get distracted by the monster movie elements of it a little <laughs> bit. Um, because that I could almost just watch an entire, uh, romantic comedy with the uh, Jeff Goldblum and Gina Davis characters that it's almost it makes it that much more tragic when they can no longer have that rapport. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just a tragic movie, and it really it really gets to me. And I kind of like I think it's because like anybody who's really come up with a great idea or you know like is an inventor or something or you know you, you just. Like, even just like, oh, I have this great idea for a podcast. You know, like, you get really excited about something, and you become really invested into it. Just like to see Jeff Goldblum's enthusiasm, and ultimately it it envelops him, and then it destroys him. And I think, like, I think a lot of people can relate to that to some degree. Like, even, I'm sure a parent can relate to that movie. <laughs> like, if their, if their kid becomes, like, a murderer or something, I don't know. <laughs> like, it, like, somebody, I, I heard on a different podcast, like, that ending is kind of an argument for abortion. I'm like, what? But like, you know, what? Yeah. Just, I mean, like the idea of something, uh, I don't know. I don't even want to <laughs> paraphrase what I, what that, that, uh, podcaster was saying, just like, um, or, um, even euthanasia or just like when you know, something has to be put down or you have to kill something because it's, Def- like the ending of the dead zone. Also. Yeah. Oh no. That, yeah. No. That's that's true. I'm sure that's a, a a recurring thing. Yeah. The dead zone is another another movie. Like I think I saw when I was younger, and my dad really loved it too. And um, God, again, like that's an, that's another one that really sneaks up on you in terms of. You're right. It being kind of a kind of a love story um, combined with the uh, supernatural, and yet it's very human for both Stephen King and Cronenberg. That that yeah. I really, uh, uh, I'm 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 still bummed out. I never even bothered with like the idea of it becoming a TV show with Anthony Michael Hall. So I just never bothered. Oh. I mean, maybe yeah, I forgot that even. I happened. mean, maybe <laughs> it's good. Who knows? But I doubt it. <laughs> I just I, I, and I think it's yeah. inevitable too that with Spider that Cronenberg would have gone on to do something like a Dangerous Methods. And Spider is, in addition to being a, a fantastic portrayal of schizophrenia, is very edible. Uh, <laughs> you know, like just early on when, um, you know, Spider is like seeing his mom in a nightgown and he has to run away. Uh, and then like, you know, later on, I guess that whole sequence with him in the field with those two guys and like one of them's talking about Sophia Loren while, um, you know, Ray Fiennes is looking at this picture of two naked women and the two naked women become his mother. Like that to me is really <laughs> really creepy yeah. and well with the way that Miranda Richardson is in- reincorporated in all those guises yeah. I, I mean you, you talk about like great performances that are you know not 
fully appreciated. I mean, I think that's one of the most astonishing performances in any of his films, and it's you know so underseen. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think that that movie really would have struck a chord with audiences, or if it would have been released, I don't know when it was released, but if it had been released around Oscar consideration time, I can't imagine both Ray Fiennes and Miranda Richardson not getting nominated, because... I think that it was. Uh, I want to say that it was like maybe in the winter of 2002 Two? Hmm. or 2000. Yeah, I want to say 2002. Cause I saw it. I saw it in maybe I think early 2003 um, in the theater. And it's funny uh, you mentioned the glass um, um, the, with the broken glass earlier. I had to tell you that um, the only walkout I've ever seen on any David Cronenberg film that I've seen in the theater was when he started playing with the broken glass around his skin, like oh, he was going to potentially cut yeah. himself. Oh. And even though that is like, you know, I, nothing ultimately graphic occurs. Know. Like that suggestion was uh, compelled one couple to leave the theater that I saw. <laughs> because it, it just pierces so closely. You're just waiting yeah. for some blood. And I'm like, oh my, like that. Yeah, I have a visceral response to that that moment i'm like oh and like even though i know what's coming what's the follow it still affects me and uh i think i think that holds true for many of my rewatches with david cronenberg like even if i know what's to come in the moment it still grabs hold of me and it still really really gets to me and i think a lot of his films can you can say it's about this but a lot of it you know in in the long run it can still be interpreted differently and, you know, a lot of them it's about, you know, sort of like a, a, a pathology of sorts or an identity crisis with history of violence and to some extent Eastern promises. Um, so, I mean, like, I just, I, I really like him as a filmmaker because he's not afraid to, you know, venture into the dark side and tackle psychology from a curious perspective, from somebody who's... I don't know if he's completely given up on society or, you know, like, and just says, oh, well, we're all doomed. That's it. We're fucked. And because there are people who truly believe that. Um, I don't know. I'm pretty sure Lars von Trier might believe that <laughs> um, or Michael Haneke. And I think uh, yes. I, I, I don't know if David Cronenberg's gotten to that point, but I, 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 I appreciate his ability to um, deconstruct the the human experience and, you know, and, and be unafraid to tackle uh, the darker elements and do it in, a, in, a, in an interesting way almost every single time. Um, one of these days, maybe I'll connect with Crash. Maybe I'll get it. I don't know, but we'll see. Well, you'll, you'll have to let me know the second that thought ever occurs to you if if you ever do well, <laughs> see I, it if, and like if, it. If I, they ever show it like on the big screen with like a film scholar or somebody who's like going to do a, a lecture on it or something, I would totally go to that. I would totally go to some. You know, ex- you know, a special event where people like people are going to talk about it and have a conversation about it, like in a film school or whatever. But I don't even know that the ideas necessarily are going to change. I mean, I could be wrong. I mean, I, I, what I respond to it are not necessarily the ideas. I mean, I respond to it like for the bravado of being what it is. But I think I just respond so much to it aesthetically. Yeah, um, I can appreciate that, that. I mean, like I respond to the mood of it because it's such a it's such a mood piece but in like such a like i respond to like the chilly prettiness of it and like the way that the music under uh you know plays under it and the way that it's i don't know the the way that it never really breaks the spell 
even when violent action occurs, it's so it so quickly just returns back to its little rhythm, which is why it's such an off-putting film if you're not kind of wrapped up in that rhythm, I think. But I mean, for me, that that sustains even more than something like Dead Ringers, which before Crash came out seemed to be the one that most appealed to me as far as like being this kind of like slightly icy clinical feel, but, but still had that, that still had some kind of real emotion to it. Crash is a lot harder to connect with, I guess, maybe emotionally, but I, you know, it's just, and I don't, I don't want to say that I watch Crash as eye candy because it's not quite what I mean, but like, I just, it just, it just like, uh, it's hard to articulate it, but it just, I just respond to it. Like almost on a nonverbal level, what I, what I get from it. Yeah, um, and there are definite movies like that where I've in my in the past where I'm like I just like this as a mood piece. I can't really articulate it. I can't really come up with a, a thesis or you know say this is exactly what what makes this movie work. It's just a feeling that I get while watching it. You know, you and I both grew up in the same period of 1990s independent film boom in North America, where there was a lot of post-pulp fiction kind of risk-taking as far as, like, the, what kind of films found real distribution. And, po- and, and post-pulp just... fiction knockoffs, unfortunately. <laughs> well, yeah, there's that. But, I mean, that's also a period where you would have, you know, Todd Haynes is safe, or you would have Lost Highway, or you would have uh, Magnolia, or you would have Fight Club, or you would have um, all sorts of things. David O. Russell's from Spanking the Monkey. You would have, like, all this unpredictable material like you know t- todd uh Solon's happiness like things things that wouldn't necessarily seem like safe choices getting pretty pretty far out there into theaters because nobody knew it's kind of the same way with pop music post nevermind it's like nobody knew what was going to stick and be the next quirky weird hit so a lot of really unusual stuff made it into just outside the door of the mainstream i think the thing i like about crash is that that feel it reminds me so much of going to movies at that time where you you really had a chance of seeing something quite shocking and new or at least that's how it felt like maybe that's also nostalgia and my the age I was when I was going to those films but I think I associate that with like the kind of like I mean that's before the NC17 I mean NC17 was already kind of like the you know kiss of death even like when showgirls kind of really took it to the grave uh but for that film to come out with the nc-17 and play in theaters i mean i was not living in new york city when it came out and i was still able to go see it in a small town theater i think i just associate it with a kind of um like a a period in american film where like a lot more chancy stuff was getting further out than it does now where it feels like that film would never have a chance to play outside of like maybe 12 cities there was like a revolution um, going on in in in, in modern day cinema, um, with after basically Tarantino came along, and then even in 1996, where a lot of independent movies were even nominated for Oscars, like you know, uh, oh, where, yeah. you know Fargo and the Coen Brothers, and a lot of things were sort of crossing over. Um, and Crash was like something I felt like it was almost tailor made for me to love uh, because as a fan of the director and the material and uh, it being a mood piece. Cause God, you know, I love Todd Haynes is safe. And to some extent when characters are stripped of their humanity, I find it just as compelling as when, you know, someone like Cameron Crowe has an overabundance of humanity. Um, mm. so I like either extreme sometime. So why? I mean, it's, again, it's just, it just could be 
something as extreme as like the the moment where James Spader decides to fuck Rosanna Arquette's leg scar, I almost feel uh-huh. like that's pushing it too far. Not necessarily like, oh, I'm offended, oh, you know, like I'm a prude. Uh. No, it's not that. Right. It's really just like, really, you had to go, you had to go there to really get your point across, or I, it, it just, I don't know. Sometimes when filmmakers really try to shove things into your face so much <laughs> or into your leg. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah and like, and again, maybe there's, you know, um, Cronenberg sort of <laughs> having his cake and eating it too, or being, you know, sort of funny with when Elias Cotea says that line, but it's, it's I, the most of it is eye rolling for me. This. Mm-hmm. Like when they're having sex on the bed, and sort of like, do you like his penis and your anus? And I was like, ah, like this is just stuff that makes me like, kind of, uh, sigh and not in a good way. Just like, uh, why? And I, and right, I well, know. but I mean, like that that sequence is about them invoking Vaughn in order to spice up their own mm. sex life. I mean, it's, 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 it, it serves a purpose. I know. In I know. The, you know, <laughs> I, I'm not saying like he's, he's just doing it gratuitously or he's, but it's just, it feels silly and then gross and then silly and then gross. I don't know why. <laughs> well, there's, there, there's always the risk with Cronenberg that if, if, if you don't connect with it, silly or gross is usually the common complaint. <laughs> yeah. And that rarely happens. Like I will easily put Cronenberg in my top 20, all-time favorite directors. So I would say, like, I would recommend the majority of his films, except for I'm not a big fan of Scanners, I'm not a big fan of Crash, and I'm not a big fan of Maps to the Stars. Like, I think... I, of course, I haven't. I haven't even seen Fast Company yet. So Fast Company is an odd is an odd film in in that it's uh, not his original screenplay, although he did do some co writing on it. Um, it was you know like, like a gun for hire kind of. Uh, sure. I mean, the financing was already in place before the film was even, I think, fully scripted because they you know there was there was a market for that kind of exploitation kind of car race film. What's interesting about Fast Company is that. It's. I mean, he has like. Well, a it gave him half the uh, the, the the family of Cronenberg regulars as far as the crew because that's where you get uh, Ron Sanders, the editor. You get Carol Spear, the production designer. You get um, uh, what's his name, uh, Mark Irwin, the DP on everything from that up through the fly. You get um, I think even the sound recordist that he had for a lot of the films up to M Butterfly uh, joined up with him there. But you also have. The uh, the obsession with motor vehicles, which is not something <laughs> that gets talked about a lot, but I mean that I mean you could see it in the way motorcycles appear and everything from Rabid to Eastern Promises. You can get Cosmopolis um, with the limo. Cosmopolis, sure, and and that and that's and obviously Crash. You know, as far as like the fusion of like man and and, and vehicle, and he actually had another film. That was another drag racing film that he wrote and could never get it financed called Red Cars that had that come out would have given Fast Company a sister film in the filmography to kind of make it make a little more sense. Because as it stands right now, it's just like this, this like feel good car racing kind of, you know, melodrama, like surrounded by Rabbit and the Brood. Crash should have been called Slow Company. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, perhaps. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm surprised Cronenberg didn't direct that one dream sequence in Nightmare on Elm Street Part Five, where um, I think uh, the boyfriend named Dan becomes the motorcycle. 
Like he becomes infused with the motorcycle, and it's it so gross. But it, it's actually one of the. As much as I don't like Nightmare on Elm Street Part Five, there's at least a couple of dream sequences in there that are really cool, like really well done. <laughs> I haven't seen it in a long time. I would say that there's a uh, a short film he made for television that he wrote and directed called The Italian Machine. That uh, I, I think it's 1976, and that one is about it's a comedy about some like guys that fetishize this really fancy motorcycle that are horrified when some like pretentious type purchases it for furniture like in his home and so like they they conspire to get it back because motorcycles should be you know taken to the road and it's like the first comedy in his filmography and i never saw it before uh prepping for this episode it's i mean it's it's i mean you talk about minor Cronenberg, it's definitely you know near the bottom but it's it's definitely fun and it it kind of further underlines like yeah that guy's really into vehicles (laughs) no surprise there well, no. let's uh, wrap things up here. I'm gonna do. Sure. I'm gonna do something crazy. I'm gonna do something. I don't know. I think I've done this before. I might have done this with, I don't know, another director before. But I want to turn this into a top five instead of a top five. instead of a top three because it's hard to it's hard to I don't know nail it down for me. And since we're doing a part two, um, and I don't know with directors that have larger filmographies that we cover, I don't mind. Um, stretching out a top five as opposed to a top three, and it makes it yeah. easier to include because it's like it's hard to it's just hard to condense it down and say like these are my absolute favorites. But I can go first. Sure. Um, I'll start from the bottom and work my way to the top. Number five. I think this is this this definitely has changed since Cronenberg uh, Part One. Number five is a history of violence. Number okay. number four is Dead Ringers. Number three is Existence. Number two is Spider, and number one mm. is The Fly. Now, I did not put The Fly and Spider together for pun purposes, <laughs> so don't think that. I just really... I, yeah, I, I, I'm trying to remember what your top three was on the last episode. I think Dead Ringers yeah. was number one at the time. Okay. That's, yeah. that's, I might have rewatched it and just loved it even more. Um, who knows? Maybe if I had rewatched it again, I'd like it even more, but I, 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 maybe it's just because it is... Really cold and clinical, uh, maybe. But I think uh, the fly. Maybe it's just because on, on the simplest of levels, it makes me cry. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely a beautiful movie. I mean, as far as any film with like you know someone vomiting on things to digest them, I think it's you know definitely oh, yeah. most emotionally. And I would totally life. vomit on John Getz if I ever had the opportunity. Well, hopefully you'll get that chance someday. Mm-hmm. But um, so my top five, I. I, I have a top four that I, I always rotates depending on the time of day as to what the order is. But I will say that for today, uh, number one is Crash. Number two is The Brood. Number three is Dead Ringers. Number four is a Videodrome. Number five is... God, what is number five? I'm going to say... I say the dead zone, but there's a lot that I could say. Um, yeah, it's it's really tricky. Oh, the dead zone is so good, and I just I have to do it again. I think I did it in episode one, but I have to do it again. The ice is gonna break. <laughs> I just love that delivery so much. I uh, who can blame you? I mean, I think that the uh, SNL parody of that film is really one of the funniest <laughs> things that they ever did with him. <laughs> Oh my! So yeah, this was fun. I'm yes. I'm glad that we got to uh, revisit one of my favorite filmmakers and uh, 
as much as I wasn't a big fan of his last two films, although, I mean, again, there's, there's stuff in Cosmopolis I really love. Uh, I really hope he continues. At least, I, I don't want him to go out on Maps to the Stars. That would really bum me out. Yeah, that would it would be. I mean, it'd be a very sad end to the uh, to the whole run of films up to that film. But yeah. it, I mean, if that's the case, it's like you still have so much. Oh yeah, that is, yeah. I know, I know. That's that's uh, that's. Know. We're blessed. We're blessed with uh, many films of his that uh, will leave quite a legacy behind. Um, so yeah, as I mentioned early on, it's going to be an interesting run of episodes. I'm not sure when Patrick is going to do an episode with you. I'm going to guess and say sometime this summer, I hope. Um, I will definitely remind him when I see him uh, this coming weekend. Yeah. Because I know you are planning to do an episode with him of films that you love that he hated. Yes, and actually, Crash is one of them. So I will get my <laughs> chance to defend Crash yet again with both of the, with both of the hosts that disliked it in the previous. Dude, you should episode. start. You should start your own podcast where you just talk about Crash with people who hate it. Like that could be every episode. Like somebody who hates Crash, and you just try to defend it. Well, I don't even really have a strong argument for why I love it so much. So it would be very uh, – I mean, hopefully this wasn't too painful for people to listen to. But, like, I don't know that I could do an entire podcast defending that one. But I, I do love it. Uh, I'm going to try. I want to try. I mean, I understand people who don't love existence. I just I, – I don't know. Maybe it's just – oh, boy, Jennifer Jason Lee. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't know, like there's just something about his uh, his ability to um, do the Cronenberg thing, but almost uh, make fun of it at the same time in that movie. But yet it's like a it's it is like a it's like a lo-fi version of the Matrix more or less because that's how what people were saying about it when it first came out. It was just like eh. it's kind of like yeah. a grungier, dirtier version of the Matrix. Well, that's happened several times to him. If you think about his whole career, you have Naked Lunch coming out around the same time as Barton Fink with the whole surreal, dark writer's films. You have Crying Game beating M. Butterfly out of the gate, and then you have The Matrix beating Existence out of the gate. Like, all these more commercial films that kind of steal the thunder of the more difficult Cronenberg uh, equivalent. It's, uh, I don't know, I don't think it's quite like a... uh, I, I think it's just coincidence. I don't think Cronenberg films are deliberately, you know, preempted by Hollywood. But I, I think it's just, uh, I remember 1999 pretty well and I, and seeing The Matrix and Existence both on opening day. And uh, I, I don't really ever think of The Matrix when I watch Existence. But, I mean, yeah, you're right that it was definitely the bat that was used to bloody Existence when it came out. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, sure. And speaking of the Wachowskis, I gotta say... Um, I didn't intend to watch an entire season of a TV show while I was um, binging on Cronenberg films, but I wound up going through all 12 episodes of Sense8, which is uh, the Wachowskis' Netflix show. And I gotta say, it's it's pretty good. It's not... I, it's still finding its, 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 its footing. It's, it's almost like the blueprints are there for a great show. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like... It's at a B, B minus... And throughout the the series, I'm like, oh, this could be an A. It, oh, it's so close to being an A show. It's so close to getting to the Matrix level. But it sort of sticks to, like, a Matrix sequel throughout. 
Um, mm-hmm. I really like the concept of interconnectivity in a very Cloud Atlas kind of way. So, I mean, the, the show has the, the kinds of themes of empathy and, um, you know, we're all connected going on that I really appreciate and respect and admire. And the action sequences are fucking great as, you know, like that's one thing you can say about the Wachowskis, even in their lesser work, the action sequences are really well done. Um, mm. so the show, I'm recommending it with reservations. I, I, I want, I, I found myself compelled to watch every episode, not because like there was a cliffhanger or anything, but I just kept wanting greatness and it just stayed at a pretty good, um, pace. Like it just, it was good. It was a good show. It's, it's, it's like mindless escape, you know, in entertainment, but I still got to use my brain and have a good time. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like the matrix probably. Uh, as much as you like Crash, so that's another conversation we can have. Ooh. But uh, yeah, I, I I I did like Bound, but um, yeah, Bound is still yeah. actually my favorite. I, I just like as much as I love all the the uh, effects heavy stuff the Wachowskis have done. I not not too much on Jupiter Ascending. wasn't wasn't a huge fan of that at all. Yeah. But um, yeah. Bound is still my favorite. Really, I really think that it's that's a great film. Yeah. It's funny because uh, Patrick's love of Speed Racer has actually tempted me to finally see that, but uh, I I still haven't seen anything they've done since The Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that would, eh, maybe we'll talk about that some other time. Maybe we'll maybe yeah. we'll do a reversal of epi- like movies that uh, Jim and Patrick love that Bill doesn't. That would be interesting. No, that would be. Interesting. I think I, I'm really looking forward to hearing your episode with Patrick. Um, I'm sure that will come within the summertime, hopefully. I'm, at this point, I'm probably going to say the end of August. Because, uh, yeah. you know, both Patrick and I have been busy. We both work full-time jobs. And, um, you know, podcasting is not going to be what it once was. I mean, I'm still I'm still set and, you know, um, determined to put out two episodes at the very least a month. And I think that's going to happen. I think you're, you're going to be treated to some good stuff in the weeks to come. Uh... Like I like I mentioned, we the next episode will be me and Patrick talking about the Master and Joe versus the volcano as like an episode where we talk about films that didn't really like that much the first time we saw it, but now we love. Um, and then a special episode. I'm just going to leave it at this. A special episode will be released on July 3rd, and no, it's not going to be a review of Independence Day. So, um, yes. Yeah, th- right. So thanks, Bill. For being on the show. Thank you, oh, thank you so much for having uh, me. Looking forward to uh, your appearances again in the future. I'm sure you'll be on for another director soon enough. So, Yeah, be glad to do it. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you very soon, I'm sure, for an episode with Patrick. I'm excited for that, and you should be too. Thanks. Bye-bye. I like David Cronenberg. I know he makes some really strange films. He likes psychology. Honorary degree in philosophy His films keep getting better Full of erotic imagery Creatures that look like vaginas Human flesh meshed with technology I remember when I was watching Scanners and Crash Fly the brew, Eastern Promises Dead Ringers, Dead Zone, Existence Video Drone, Naked Lunch, History of Violence And I, I Remember Long Live the New Flesh And I, I Remember William Burroughs as a cockroach friend Now we're gonna talk about 
Cronenberg, 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 Cronenberg. Which is crazy!